right. Good evening, everybody. Good to see you back here uh, tonight. Again, my name is Bob O'Bannon, one of the pastors on staff here at New Life, and um, uh, hoping that we'll see some others coming in here shortly, but we need to get started. We've got pretty full agenda. Hopefully you all have an agenda. Um, we had a few left over out there. Hopefully you grabbed one or brought the one that you got last night. Um, <clears throat> the uh, order of events tonight is very similar to last night. Um, we've got different speakers here this evening, of course, but um, take a look at that and note that we will have another Q&A panel and we will have breakout workshops after that, just like last night. So because of the Q&A panel, keep in mind the <clears throat> number and as you have questions for the panelists, just uh, send those in and I'll keep track of them and ask them to the panelists. If you're new here tonight, weren't here last night, be assured these questions will be anonymous, no way to know who you are. Um, so hopefully that provides some freedom for you to ask the question that you want. Uh, also, I just wanna mention briefly that we do worship here on Sunday mornings, services at 10.30 a.m. and uh, wanna extend a welcome to any of you who might be looking for a place to worship 10.30 a.m. here um, at New Life. Um, I think that's it. I'm going to pray and introduce our first speaker. Okay, let's do that. Our Father, we come to you tonight because uh, we know that through the work of Jesus, you have opened a way for us to enter into your presence. And we thank you, Lord, that although we are sinners who have offended you and we are people who carry shame and guilt, we have confidence that the blood of Jesus has wiped us clean, and so we come into your presence with this confidence and assurance of your love for us. And we thank you for the Holy Spirit of the living God who um, is with your people, and I pray that your spirit would bless and fill and speak through those speaking tonight. I pray that you would bring comfort and encouragement, Lord, to those who are carrying heavy guilt and shame. I pray, Father, that um, this weekend would be the beginning of a major turning point for many people seeking freedom from sex addiction and pornography. So um, continue that work, start that work in people's lives, Father, tonight. So we give this evening to you and look for you, God, to be present and to bring glory to yourself. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. Um, First off, author, excuse me, first speaker is Lori Hall, who is an author, uh, wrote a book on um, partner trauma, was published by Focus on the Family, Lori Hall, so we're really glad to have you, Lori. You, you can, on the floor or up here, whatever you want. Probably I'm gonna look at my cheat sheet. Thank you. Thank you, Pastor. Really appreciate you hosting this. It takes a lot of courage to open this topic up because there's so much pain around it. But it's a huge problem in the church. At least 50% of Christian couples are struggling with this. So you look around in your congregation and there's a lot of hurting people. And it's not an easy problem to solve. So it takes just a lot of courage to bring it out of the closet. But also, no, there is hope. Lots of wonderful things are happening in the field of sex addiction recovery right now. I'm on the board of the Association of Partners of Sex Addicts Trauma Specialists. That is the premier organization that's doing research, uh, advocacy, uh, and helping 
the entire therapeutic community began to look at this problem from a different perspective, from the trauma perspective. We started advocating for the partners. My book was the first book that advocated for partners when it came out in 1996. And I advocated that we are not coming from a codependent viewpoint. That was the popular approach to um, partners of those who were struggling with problematic sexual behavior. We were treated as if we were codependent. I advocated that that was not so, that what we were is traumatized. And now what's wonderful is that not only are we starting to have more people who are trained and certified in the trauma model for partners, but because of our advocacy on the part of partners, more and more uh, sex therapists are understanding that the root of a lot of sex addiction is trauma. And so there's all kinds of wonderful new approaches to helping those who are struggling with problematic sexual behavior. So I'm here. Porn does kill, but there is hope. I just want you to know that, okay? So, what I'm gonna talk about tonight is porn as relational and partner trauma. And I don't wanna bring this from a perspective of increasing a feeling of guilt or shame or hopelessness, but it's here to just kind of lay it out. This is what's happening. And sometimes what we need in order to move forward is really understand exactly what's going on in our relationship and how we might be involved in causing it. So we're gonna cover why porn causes relational trauma, the brain on trauma, and how we can support partners. So porn does cause relational trauma. And this is a really fascinating study that was done out of um, the University of Nebraska. It's a recent study that found married American men and women who use pornography are roughly twice as likely to get divorced than men and women who do not. And here's the real shocker. Younger couples and happier couples seem to be more affected by porn use than older couples and less happy couples. Isn't that, isn't that sad? In other words, if you're a, a happy couple, a younger couple, this is gonna be more devastating to you than somebody who was already unhappy, okay? So let's talk about how porn does affect the relationship. Well, the first most obvious thing is it takes time from the relationship. Uh, hours looking at videos, hours on the phone, um, time away from home, maybe going to strip clubs as the thing escalates, um, hiring prostitutes. There's a lot of time invested in a pornography addiction. And it, it starts out small, but the longer you do it, the more you want to act out, so more and more time is spent. And I know that Lisa probably covered some of that yesterday. Here's another thing that affects the relationship is that porn users have flashback memories that intrude on their ability to be present during the time the couple is together. So you can physically be sitting together in the same room and the partner who is involved in secret porn use is a million miles away. Dissociation is a big part of addiction. And remember, they're shooting up in the recesses of their mind because all these images are stored there. And so they don't even have to be looking at something while they're sitting with you. 
The memories come back. It's almost like a LSD drug trip, if you will. The memories just come back, and they can be sitting there with you and off in a fantasy world. So there's this incredible sense of not ever being able to really connect heart to heart with your partner. Another thing that happens is that the couple's money is used for things that are destructive of the coupleship. I've worked with people who spent 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, $100,000 on their addiction. That's a lot of money. Not only is it the money that was spent, it's the money that wasn't earned because the time was not invested wisely. The brain was not able to engage in, in a business that was going to allow you to move up the corporate ladder and generate more income for your family. So there's a huge impact in the money. Okay, whoops, let's go back. Okay, and then here's a, here's a really big one. Damage to the couple's sexual relationship. Dr. Marianne Layden, who's one of the primary researchers in pornography, she's been researching this for many, many years. Uh, when she gave her testimony before Congress, she said that when people spend a lot of time in unnatural sexual experiences, whether it's paper, like a magazine, or celluloid, like a movie, or cyberspace, whether you're online, they seem to find it difficult to have sex with a real human being. And what's so fascinating is that actually this is one of the things that's causing a change in pornography usage. There's a whole movement called the NoFap movement. I don't know if you've heard of that. But one of the reasons why that started is because when young men, and I'm talking college-age men, are looking at pornography and masturbating to it, they actually lose their ability to have an erection with their primary partner. And uh, Dartmouth College, their um, health department, they see more young men coming in there with problems of ED, and they realize it's from pornography usage. And so it really has a huge impact on their ability to have sex with their primary partner. Pornography, not only that, not only does it cause a problem with the physical aspects of sex, but because it's toxic miseducation, about sex and relationship, it trains men and women to expect designer sex in the real world. And if you know anything about how pornography is produced, there's all kinds of sexual acts that happen there that are actually contrary to human, normal human sexual nature and response. And there's all kinds of cuts. You know, this isn't like happening in real time. They film it and then they cut and paste it together to make it look like it's really all one scene, but it's very abnormal sex and it does not work with the normal physiology and anatomy of uh, human sexuality. One of the things that it does is it confuses sexual arousal with anxiety arousal. And so again, here you have someone, a partner, and, and uh, um, the wife may not know that he's using porn. We're still at the secret porn use at this point, okay? So this is all going on. She may have this feeling there's something that's not right, but I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. But what she knows is when they're in bed together that there's a different feeling than what she thinks should be there. And if she is uh, a woman who maybe she followed the biblical principle and she's never been with anybody else before her husband, 
She doesn't really know what to expect in the way of normal sex. But there's something in her gut that says there's something that's not quite right here. And one of the things that she might be picking up is that in pornography, you confuse sexual arousal with anxiety arousal. And part of how that develops is if you're masturbating to, say, YouTube videos, you want to get that done very quickly before you get caught. Okay, so you're blending anxiety in with normal sexual arousal, and that energy comes into the bedroom when you're with your partner. Um, it causes erectile dysfunction and premature ejaculation. Those are not things that make for really good sexual relationships in a marriage. Okay. Uh, it causes dissatisfaction with the sexiness of the partner. And I don't want to repeat anything. Did you talk about this last night? Because I don't want to get into this too much. But not in the same way? Okay. So what happens is chasing the cardboard butterfly. Okay. There's a... There's some wonderful research that was done by a Nobel Prize winning scientist where he was kind of wondering if he could affect the mating habits of butterflies. And what he did was he made these cardboard butterflies and he painted them with beautiful day glow colors so that they were just really awesome the and made it look like a female butterfly. And he put them out in the field. And what happened is the male butterflies went to the cardboard butterflies. They would not go to the real female butterflies. Because the cardboard butterflies were so beautiful, they just drew the male butterflies in. Now think about that. The women in pornography are siliconed, airbrushed, um, they've had all kinds of plastic surgery, okay, and they are not normal, but they are definitely gorgeous. Can we say that? They are made up to be absolutely gorgeous, and they will look very different than a normal woman who doesn't have all of that extra uh, artificiality about her, and so it's normal then for the male human to be attracted more to this fake woman than he would be to a real woman. And this is what's devastating a lot of women. One of the things that's happening in the college age young women, and you know when you're in college, are you not gorgeous at that point? Yes, you are, okay? That is when you're at your most gorgeousness, okay? A lot of young college women whose boyfriends are using pornography are feeling more and more crushed. They're wondering what is wrong with them, that their boyfriend is comparing them or doesn't want to be with them because they aren't as beautiful as these fake women. Another, this is another sad thing that happens. And again, this is all going on without the wife knowing that, this is, that her husband is into this. So I'm setting the stage for what's going to happen when she finally finds out. Uh, porn promotes rape fantasy. And it has from the very beginning. I mean, way back when Hugh Hefner first started promoting pornography, there was this meme that women say no, but they really mean yes. And if you keep you know, pushing and pushing and pushing, they, they will just eventually come to love it. And so if you have been looking at that and uh, masturbating to that, you are imprinting in your brain a connection between coercive behavior 
and sexual response. And the brain is, is amazing. I mean, it just learns to do what you ask it to do. So I have, sad to say, uh, coached women whose husbands have used drugs on them so that they could rape them. Women who were not drugged but were still raped in the marital bed. And that's a really, t or they're asked to act out a fantasy of rape, like being bound and so forth, um, because that fits the fantasy that the, those who've been looking at pornography have conditioned themselves to, okay? Because that's how they get a high. What does that do to the heart of a woman? This is the most sacred act that can happen between two people, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. And if in that sacred act, she is violated, or she, asks, she is asked to allow herself to be violated as part of fulfilling a fantasy, then there's a very deep wound that happens inside of her. Sexually transmitted diseases are a big part of pornography usage, not just from looking at the pornography, but if the pornography escalates to acting out, and it often does, uh, the longer you look at it, the more likely you're going to go ahead and act out. Usually it starts with the porn and it goes to like strip shows and then eventually going to the massage parlors, hiring escorts, that sort of thing. Whenever you start getting into sex outside the marriage, you will probably be exposed to STDs. Some people manage to survive without that, and that's, I mean, that's a miracle, but a lot of people do get exposed to STDs. I've worked with partners who found out their husbands were cheating on them when they went for their routine gynecological exam, and they were told they had an STD. And they said, but I can't have an STD. <laughs> you know, I, I'm, I'm in a monogamous relationship. Well, they did. And to me, the most tragic ones, they're all tragic, but the most tragic ones are when a woman is pregnant and she finds out her husband has given her an STD. Okay, that should be the happiest time of her life. And now not only is it a crushing experience, but now she's frightened for her child. Another uh, impact that pornography has on the sexual relationship is it creates gender confusion. I was saying this back in the 90s just because I had a gut sense that it was so, and now research is proving that, okay? What happens when you're looking at pornography and you're um, masturbating to it, you're having orgasm to it, you may think you're just looking at the woman if you're a man, that you're just looking at the woman. Or if you're a woman, that you're just enjoying what the man is doing to the woman. But here's the kicker. You're still rewarding the, the uh, pleasure center of your brain to the, opposite, to the same sex image. Okay, so you are conditioning your brain to be sexually satisfied with same sex. And I really believe this is a big part of the reason why we have so much going on with gender confusion now. Because from the time they're little, and really little, four, five, six, seven, eight, people have been looking at this 
and they don't know which sex they're more attracted to eventually because the brain can't differentiate. They have those images come back and you know, the other thing that's really sad with the gender confusion now, used to be just the women who wanted to have like their breast augmented and so forth. Now men are asking to do some type of surgery to make their penises bigger because they can't measure up to what's in porn. So it's causing all this gender confusion inside people and they, they're not really sure what they've conditioned themselves to, but it then impacts their marriage. Okay, well, let me go back. Okay, I was in Virginia Beach a couple of weeks ago at the annual conference for the Society for the Advancement of Sexual Health. And one of the workshops I went to was done by a woman named Aviva Cole. And Aviva Cole is an Orthodox Jew. She's in New York City and she works with the Hasidic and Orthodox Jewish community in the area of sexual addiction. And in my book, An Affair of the Mind, I had talked about how a marriage is a covenant and how the symbol of the covenant is enacted in the whole uh, relationship. And she just took that to a whole nother level in something that she said. But one of the things that you'll see, like in a marriage, you have the man on one, man's family on one side, the woman's family on the other side. That symbolizes in the Old Testament when they would take like an animal, and they would cut it in half, right? And then the two covenant makers would walk between it. There's always witnesses to the vows. The vows are the covenant vows, okay? And in the Old Testament, you always had witnesses to the vows. There are also blessings and cursings. Well, one of the things that Aviva shared with us, I just thought this is so powerful. In the Jewish wedding, it is the groom who makes the vows to the bride. The bride's job is simply to receive. And he writes up a covenant with the help of several of his male friends. It's written in Aramaic. And the covenant says, I will take responsibility for your emotional, your financial, and your physical needs. And that covenant is read out loud by men who are friends of the groom at the wedding. And the covenant also says, if I don't do this, I owe you X amount of money. I just thought that was so powerful. And you can see here in these pictures these are pictures of um, Hasidic and Orthodox Jewish weddings. You see the prayer shawl that he is extending over her head. He will be her protector. And then the other picture on the, um, looking at the right side for you, he wraps her in that shawl. He will be her protector. Again, the bride is to do nothing but receive. She doesn't promise anything other than I will receive this love, this protection, this provision from you. That's the original idea. 
I was like, where can I convert, you know? Is there a way I can convert? I thought that was very, very powerful. But you can understand, if that was the original intention that God had for marriage, why there's such a deep wound when the protection is removed and exploitation happens instead. And here's the interesting thing. Intercourse is the sign and seal of the marriage covenant. That is why we say a marriage is consummated once intercourse has taken place. Until intercourse has happened, the marriage is not consummated. So intercourse is the sign and the seal of the covenant. And when you realize that, then it puts a whole nother light on what happens when one partner takes sex outside the marriage. It is not just a betrayal of trust. It is actually striking at the very heart of what the covenant is. And in the Hasidic and Orthodox communities, what they teach is that um, sex should be completely skin on skin, that it is the most divine thing that you can do, that it is the most sense of connection you will ever have with God. That sense of union, that sense of joy, that sense of total connection with another being, of going beyond yourself to meet somebody and having them go beyond themselves to meet you. So when you realize this, I mean, subconsciously, I think we know these things, but when you bring it out in the open and you say, this is the power that God gave to sex, because remember in the beginning, um, when Adam was created, and God brought before him all the animals. There was male, there was female, there was male, there was female. And it says there was nothing found suitable for a helpmeet for Adam. So God took out of Adam's side Eve. And when he looked at her, he said, in the, in the um, ancient language, it says, ish, ishy. That's me. It's not me, but it's me. He recognized himself in her. And God says that he created male and female in his own image and likeness. He created them. So God has a maleness and a female aspect to the Godhead. And it is in sex, it is in intercourse, when that maleness and that femaleness is rejoined, that, it, that is the whole picture of God. So it's a very powerful symbol to us of our, our connection with God. And when we take it outside the marriage, it has deep inner uh, repercussions for our ability to know who we are. So here's some more things that happen as a cost to the relationship. When you are doing something that you know doesn't fit your value system, you have to find a way to justify the fact that you're doing it. Um, it's just the way we're wired. <laughs> so they need to find entitlement to act out. So one of the ways they do that is they will always look for a way to be a victim. So they will look for, what am I angry about? How have I been harmed? Resentment is the gateway drug. And I work with some recovering sex addicts, and the pattern that I see over and over again in them is they will tell me, well, she did this and she did that, or he did this and he did that, and they are ginning up ahead of resentment 
and feeling like a victim because that's how they slide down into acting out. And here's the problem. If you're the partner and you don't know why this is happening to you, you just know that, that your husband is angry at you all the time, or if it's the other way around, if the wife is the one who's acting out, she's the one who's angry at you all the time, always finding fault with you, it causes a lot of mental confusion. You're trying to figure out what the heck is going on. Why, is, why are they so angry all the time? What am I doing wrong? Why can't I figure this out? So you have one partner who is always on the defensive and another partner who is being on the offensive. And so there's a lot of chaos and a lot of negative energy in the relationship. So when we're doing something that we don't want anyone to know, we have to lie, of course. And when we're lying and when we're using other people, we shut down our ability to have empathy. And, and here's the thing that um, is so important. Many people who become addicted to pornography or problematic sexual behavior have some type of trauma that happened when they were little. And sometimes when I hear the traumas that the recovering addicts that I work with have been through, I just want to cry. They're very, very sad things that happen to these little boys. They really are. In order to survive, they shut off their feelings. But feelings don't go away. We find a way to numb them, okay? Um, I think about, and I, I can say this because I'm not identifying anyone, but um, a little boy who, when he was five years old, he would hear his father beating his mother so how does he comfort himself? He masturbates. That feels better, doesn't it? Than knowing that your mother's getting all beaten up? Yeah, that feels better for a while. And then it goes from that to pornography, and then it escalates. But that is the way he learned to numb the pain, okay? The problem is when we numb our own pain, we lose the ability to feel someone else's pain. So we lack empathy. We don't really understand how our behavior is affecting other people. But what it leads to for the partners is that they feel very unsafe. They just can't figure out what's going on. They feel very unsafe. They feel confused. They feel invisible, disempowered, and shamed. Let me go. Did I? I want to talk a little bit about gaslighting because that's often how lying is done. So gaslighting is an insidious form of mental abuse in which the information is twisted, spun, or selectively omitted to favor the abuser. Okay, so if you want to say, well, um, you know, you were supposed to be home at 8 and it's 11 and I'm what happened? Oh, well, um, well, I, you know, I had to work late. That's spinning it, right? Or, if false information is presented with the intent of making victims doubt their own memory, perception, and sanity. So the answer could be, I never told you I was going to be home at 8. I, I told you it would be 11. And then you're left to go... Well, did I get that wrong? Did I get that wrong? 
So this is how it shows up. I call this DARVO. D stands for defend, deny, or deflect. So when a question is asked, or the partner is trying to get an answer about what is going on, there will be denial. There might be defending or there might be deflecting. I have a partner that I'm working with. Um, there's all kinds of red flags, but nothing that you can put your finger on and say, yeah, got that, got that, got that. And so if you have like um, excessive data on the phone usage, it could be something like, I, never, I don't know why that's there. I don't use extra data. Or it could be, hey, you know, the deflection could be, well, you use a lot of data too. Or it could be defending, well, you know, I'm just looking at um, this or this. And I have a right to do that. The A stands for attack. So then it goes right back and the partner is now attacked. You know, you're so emotional, you don't, you don't trust me. I can remember when I asked my husband, I said, I think, you're, I think you're cheating on me. And he didn't answer the question. He said I was a horrible person for even thinking that he would do that. How could I even believe that? See, so he attacked me instead of explain what was really going on. And then what they do is they reverse the victim and the offender. So you now become the offender and they are your victim. And what that leads to is feelings of being unsafe, being confused, invisible, disempowered, and ashamed. You were always doubting your own sanity. So gaslighting is um, trying to convince you that what you saw you didn't see, what you said you didn't say, what you heard you didn't hear, what you didn't see you saw, what you didn't say you, you said, and what you didn't hear was there for the hearing. Okay? So here's, here's the prayer. And when I say narcissist, addiction in and of itself is very narcissistic because it's all about you. It doesn't mean that somebody who is acting out like this has narcissistic personality disorder, but it does mean that addiction per se is very narcissistic because it's all about you. So a narcissist prayer is that didn't happen. And if it did, it wasn't that bad. And if it was, it's not that big a deal. And if it is, it's not my fault. And if it was, I didn't mean it. But if I did, you deserved it. Okay. So again, the partner is feeling unsafe, confused, invisible, disempowered, and shamed. But at this point, she still may not know what's going on. She just knows something isn't right. And she's probably what's not right, because that's how she's, she's been convinced of that. And if she's gone for help and she's been given advice, like, which I was, okay, well, you just need to pray more, you need to trust God more, you know, you need to let him be the head, you need to submit, and so forth, then she's becoming more and more disempowered and more confused. So signs of gaslighting. Are you the victim of gaslighting? This is watch out for these signs. You constantly question yourself. You wonder if you're too sensitive. You're easily confused. You struggle to make decisions. You can't stop apologizing. You think everything you do is wrong. You think you're not good enough, and you feel like you always make bad choices, 
and you deserve to be alone, and you're unhappy for no reason, and you start creating excuses for him. And then you've lost all your confidence. So a lot of this is going on before the partner finds out what's happening. Okay, so she's already in a very fragile psychological and emotional state. Then comes discovery. Okay, 84 of disclosures, 84% were accidental or unplanned. In other words, only 16% is somebody going to sit you down and say, Here, here's what's been going on. 84% of the time, partners find this out by accident. Okay, and 75% occurred when the partner discovered evidence or stumbled on hidden secret behaviors. Or sometimes what happens is the partner just says, we can't go on, we've got to have some help, and that's when it all comes out. That's Barbara Steffens. Dr. Barbara Steffens is the president of the Association of Partners of Sex Addicts Trauma Specialists. She just received the Carnes Award. I nominated her for that. That uh, The Carnes Award is the most pre prestigious award that you can get. It is for someone who has made incredible advancements in the field of treating sexual addiction. So that's Dr. Steffens. So now trauma sets in. Trauma is a very severe shock or very upsetting experience that causes psychological and physical damage and may have long-lasting effects. There we go. It's about feeling disempowered and a sense that the world is an unsafe place. So the partner was probably already feeling disempowered and unsafe before we get here, but now all of a sudden she's realizing that it was way worse than what she thought. And on the other hand, she has, at long last, she knows what's going on. So it's kind of this mixed uh, bag of how she's responding. And here's the questions they ask themselves when they find out what's going on. Who is this person I've been living with? Okay, some people find out shortly after they're married. Some people, I've worked with partners who didn't find out for 40 years what was really going on. It's a real shock to realize you've been living with somebody all this time and didn't know. And so the next question they ask is, what else don't I know? Not just about this person, but what else don't I know about life? Because suddenly every sense of what is real and true is shaken. How could I not have seen this? How stupid am I? I can't tell you how many times I've heard partners say that. I'm so stupid. I'm so stupid I didn't see it. So you see it comes back on the partner once again where you're judging yourself that you didn't know what was going on. Why wasn't I enough? And then here's the thing. What's going to happen to us? Will I be okay? And will the children be okay? And these are questions that swirl around and around and around in a partner's mind after she discovers what's going on. So now we're talking about betrayal trauma. And this isn't just a um, finding out something you didn't want to know, but this is a betrayal because it's a violation by someone you relied on or depended on for safety and security. And if you remember the, um, the hoopah and the talith, which is the prayer shawl, the idea being protection and safety, and now all that's been upended. Okay, so the nature of the relationship is the most important issue and how great the feeling of betrayal is. So if it's just, if it's a friend, that's hard. But if it's your best friend, that's really hard. And if it's your life partner, then that makes it 
seem even bigger. And it leads to forgetting or denying the traumatic or betrayal events. So I'm going to skip through these so I can get to what I want. Okay. So the partner of a sex addict has responses that serve as a stressor that is traumatic in nature in predictable emotional behavior and psychological ways as her mind and body attempt to adapt and survive in a dangerous situation. She seeks what she cannot find, which is safety in an unsafe situation. And, and here's why. This is a triangle. Okay, the perpetrator is also the person that she needs to go to for comfort. So she doesn't know where to go to find comfort and safety because the person who is her soul mate, the person who's, you know, the, the agreement was you'll have my back and I'll have your back is now unsafe. So where does she go? So approximately 69% of spouses then show signs of post-traumatic stress disorder. They have enormous fear. Their whole world seems to be falling apart. Um, they have visions in their head they, of what acting out might have happened. Uh, they can't get rid of those. They become hypervigilant. Um, they're very, very triggered by just about everything. So there's a difference between acute stress disorder and PTSD. And some people will experience acute distress disorder. But if you've been in this situation for a long time, and if there was a lot of gaslighting before you got there, then you may actually go into um, PTSD. Or for example, if after the day of discovery, the addiction continues and now we're months and maybe even years down the road, then there's more likely to be full-blown PTSD or even complex PTSD. So some signs and symptoms of it are efforts to avoid thoughts, uh, avoiding activities. A lot of partners withdraw. They don't know what to say to anybody. They lose their ability to enjoy life. Their memory is affected. They feel detached. They feel flat inside. They have difficulty sleeping. They can be irritable. They become hypervigilant, and I'm going to show you the brain in a minute. Difficulty concentrating. They have an exaggerated startle reflex and intrusive thoughts. And so this is, this is not a mental illness. It's a psychological injury that happens, and it happens in the brain. Okay. So you can see on the right, that's a PTSD brain. The left is a normal brain. Do you see how certain areas of the brain are, I mean, they're not normal functioning. Okay, so this isn't a matter of willing yourself out of this. This is a matter of having the right kind of help so that your brain can calm down and you can reconstruct it. Here's another picture showing uh, on the left you have a control subject brain and on the right you have a PTSD brain. You can see there are parts of the brain where hyperarousal is occurring. And that's because you have a part, I think that's hard to read, isn't it? PTSD does change your brain. The amygdala, which is a part of your brain, it's kind of like your sonar. Um, it's out there all the time scanning to see what's going on. It picks up good and it picks up things that are not so good. When you realize something not so good has happened, 
what, the amygdala actually grows in size because it's like, uh-oh, we've we got to be hypervigilant because there might be something more coming down the road. So now everything is suspect. The hippocampus is the part of our brain that's kind of like our um, search engine. When we have experiences in our life, our brain puts like tags on those experiences. And when the next experience comes along, we have a, the hippocampus says, okay, I remember something like that that happened before. Okay, so then the memories get joined together and then the prefrontal cortex is the one that's supposed to figure out what you're gonna do about those. But the problem is, when you have a trauma, the blood flow to the left side of the prefrontal cortex actually decreases. And that's the part of your brain that's able to deal with uh, language and memory and figure out what the heck you're gonna do. And the blood flow to the right side of the brain, of the uh, prefrontal cortex increases. And that's the part of your brain that um, will cause you to have more anger and more anxiety. Okay, so it's not a psychological issue, it's actually a physiological issue at this point. So here's another example, which I'm gonna go through this quickly. But this is your brain on complex PTSD. Sometimes, I, I, I wish I was dead, I feel like I'm in pain most of the time. I feel spacey, like I can't think straight. Nightmares, even the simplest tasks become very difficult. Um, I've known partners who are extremely competent and they just cannot figure out the next thing to do. They feel lost, in fact, it's scary how lost you feel. Um, they're always vigilant, they can't concentrate, they can't sleep, they feel alone, they feel um, hopeless. I'm gonna skip through that, okay, so. Trauma is about being stuck in either high levels of arousal or in the low level shutdown of feelings of arousal and a dissociation. Dr. Peter Levin is the one who did a lot of research on trauma. And what he wanted people to know is how to become aware of their body sensations so they can befriend, befriend the sensations, discharge them, and move out of the stuck places. So, let me go here. Where's this? Okay, this is what I wanted to show you. And I know it's hard to read, but this is your autonomic nervous system. Over in the red, the orange and red, those are when you are in a, a, a situation where you, you are feeling threat when you're traumatized. Okay, the first one is hyperfreeze, hyper hyper or fi I'm sorry, fight and flight. The next one is hyperfreeze, and the last one is hypofreeze. In the old days, we used to think that it was fight or flight but now we realize that it's more complex than that when we've been traumatized. In the fight or flight, that's when you say, you know what, if I fight hard enough, I run fast enough, I can get out of here. In the hyper freeze, that's when you say, I can't get out by fighting or fleeing, but if I keep one eye open, I can find a way to escape. And the last one is hypofreeze, and this is when you don't think there's any way you can save yourself. And I love this chart, and it's hard to see, I'm gonna give you guys a link. This I use with my clients all the time because it shows you what's going on in your body with your heart rate, with your respiration, with your uh, pupils of your eyes, and it is a way for you to identify 
I'm pegged over here. I need to bring myself back to here. Okay, so these are actual physiological things that are happening inside your body. Let me just go back here real quick. So the first thing that has to happen for a partner, phase one, after discovery, safety. You have to find a way to be safe. So the nervous system cannot be reset until the partner feels safe. Safety feels like peace of mind, certainty, happiness, confidence, stability, knowing what's going to happen next. And right after you have a discovery that you're not sure what's going to happen with your marriage, you don't feel any of that. So you need strategies for physical and emotional safety. Boundaries are important. And if you're working with a partner, the most important thing you can do is not judge, just listen. Okay. Be be present without judgment, allow for their emotions. The initial exploration acceptance of emotions are very important. You have to do this a little bit at a time because it's so overwhelming. If you take it all out, you can't deal with it. Just listen and accept. Anger. This is something that's very hard for us as Christians because we're, we tend to run, run away from anger. But one of my partners gave me a fabulous definition of anger, a normal, godly, emotional response. Anger is nothing more than an outward expression of hurt, fear, and frustration. So drill under the anger and get to the hurt and the fear and the frustration. Find a way to empower Allow for the process that it takes to sort through what's happened and how they want to respond. Allow for their need to say the same thing over and over and over and over and over and over and over again because they're trying to come to terms with the fact that their life, is, the sand, is shifting underneath their feet. They don't know what's going to happen. They're trying to integrate this new awareness with what they thought their life was going to be and what they think their life can be. And so they have to say the same thing over and over again in order to integrate that. And they will change their minds many times about what they're gonna do with next steps. So that's all part of grieving, right? That's the bargaining part of grieving. I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna do this. So what you wanna do is create that stability so that they can be resilient and reorganize their nervous systems. And if you understand the immobility of the partner, you can help them feel successful. Um, I, have, I have a group that I run on Tuesday nights down in Indianapolis, and some women are still in their marriages. Some of the marriages, they're thriving because the partner is getting help, the addict is getting help. Other marriages are not surviving because there's no help. It's happening. What you don't want to do is put anybody in a position where they feel they have to make a decision. Okay, let them have time to make their own decision because it's a decision they're going to have to live with. And then in the middle, while they're waiting to figure out what's going on, provide opportunities to be successful and create joy. I work on delicious daily habits. I work on things that the partners can do to make their lives more joyful. And then, I think I'm going to wrap it because we're near the end. But I want you to understand the difference between forgiveness and reconciliation because sometimes as Christians, we get this confused. So forgiveness is not the same as reconciliation. It takes two for reconciliation, only one for forgiveness. It's not excusing unjust behavior. It's acknowledging that unjust behavior is without excuse 
And it's not explaining away the hurt. It's working through the hurt. And both parties probably have hurt, especially if the one with problematic sexual behavior has some type of trauma that they grew up with. So there's hurt on both sides. So it's about working together through that hurt. We, don't, we can't put the past behind us by forgetting or pretending the hurtful thing didn't happen. And it's not instant. And it's not always a single event. You can be a couple of years down the road and something will trigger you and you'll have to work on the forgiveness again. But it's possible. I want you to know that. Okay, we're going to just... So, the last thing... Well, we just want, I'm going to do this. So, I call this at last. I made this up on the back of a Harley Davidson. I did. <laughs> I was thinking, how the heck do you ever get through this? And the answer is, at last. So that stands for A is acknowledge. Acknowledge what's happened. And T is turn it to truth. What is the truth of how I feel? What is the truth of all the situations that brought this about? What is the truth of who God is in the middle of all this? L is loving self-care. Self-care, self-care, self-care. We can't change anybody but us, but we need to learn how to take care of ourselves and show ourselves compassion. A stands for, again, you have to do this over and over again. It's not a one-shot one deal, okay? You'll have to go back and acknowledge, turn it to truth and loving self-care. Wash, rinse, repeat. And finally, stand in the real truth of knowing who you are, who God is in the midst of all this. And then the last one is turn it to good. And I can say for myself and what happened in my marriage, 1991 was the year that I had my day of discovery. And in that day, I was so broken. And I said, God, there has to be a reason for this. There has to be a reason for this. And I want to see something good come out of it. And what came out of it was a book that sold over 125,000 copies. What came out of it was advocacy for partners, and now I'm on the board of an international organization that advocates for partners. You can turn whatever happens to you for good. That is redemption. I have so much joy knowing that this very heartbreaking situation in my life has brought about a revolution inside of me in knowing who I am, knowing who God is, and also a change in our society advocating for trauma, anyone who's experienced trauma, and the lifelong impact that it has, and that there's hope. We can turn it to good. God does give us beauty for ashes. Okay. So, thank you. Thank you, Lori. Uh, wonderful job. Excellent. Um, yeah, I mean, I think last time Lori was here, she told us her story, and uh, her story is, is fascinating, and I would recommend that you find a way to, to hear that from her somehow, because uh, it, it is uh, a painful story, but a wonderful one as well. So thank you, Lori. Um, again, if you want to ask Lori a question, she'll be up here on the Q&A panel, so there's a number again. Um, if some of you came in late, we're going to have Q&A here in a little while, so just text your questions to that number, and we'll ask the question to the panelists. 
Uh, so we always try to provide some time during these uh, conferences for people to tell a little bit about their story. And you heard from Eric Michaels last night, did a great job. It was such a, uh, a wonderful and powerful testimony of Eric's experience of uh, finding freedom from pornography addiction. So we have um, another testimony now from Brock. And is it, is it Geglin? Geglin, okay. Brock, uh, thanks for being here and come forward and uh, tell us about your life. Thank you. I'm actually going to stay down here if that's cool. Um, so my name's Brock. I'm a junior at Indiana Wesleyan University. I'm 21. Uh, I have a very common story uh, for a lot of men, which is really sad. Um, but I was raised in a Christian family. Uh, my parents both... Uh, were strong Christians, uh, grew up in the church, and wanted to raise their family in the same way. And so from day one, we went to church every Sunday. I went to youth group every Wednesday. Uh, my parents homeschooled me uh, because they didn't want me to be a part of the world. Um, they wanted to have a good foundation um, before I went to school on my own. And uh, so through eighth grade, I was actually homeschooled. Uh, my, my dad thought that it would be a great idea to teach me how to use computers, and so he bought me my own laptop, uh, and this was at 12, um, and then put no restrictions on it. And so as a curious kid, uh, it just developed into, um, I lived, uh, my room was in the basement, and I kind of just started to hide out. And uh, over time, my friends and my parents um, could tell a change in who I was um, becoming, and it was a really sad transition uh, in my life. Uh, and so as I, as my curiosity kind of took over, I realized um, and started to, to dive deeper into um, what the internet held, and there's so much out there. Um, there. And even since I was a kid, there is so much more on the internet, and they find you. And, uh, and so as I was um, beginning into this addiction to pornography, it was so heartbreaking um, for me because I knew as a kid uh, this was just not what my parents wanted for me, not what my friends uh, wanted for me, and, and it was just a huge pit of shame for me, but I didn't know how to get out of it. I was in isolation, and I, uh, there were a lot of physical things that changed with me. I was, uh, or in relationships, I was, I was so closed I didn't want to talk to anyone. I didn't want to have a real conversation. Uh, if people asked me how I was doing, I would give a quick response, avoid eye contact, and, uh, and was very, very quick to get out of any situation where people could um, bring up questions or subjects that I was not interested in talking about. Um, so my parents actually saw this change uh, in me and were smart enough to realize they needed to do something about it and figure out what was going on. Uh, so they actually went through my laptop and caught me. And so then in sixth grade, um, they came up to me and confronted me with all this. And it was a, probably the most shame and probably the, one of the worst days of my entire life. Um, and I remember it clearly. <laughs> and, uh, and as my mom just sat there crying, uh, I, I remember thinking, I will never do this again. I will never do this again. I'm, I'm done with pornography. I'm, I'm done with all of this. Uh, but I didn't realize what an addiction was. Um, so my parents took my laptop away from me, and for quite a while, I was free from this. I um, didn't really have any access to pornography. Uh, but then going into high school, I, I wanted to go to a public high school in order to play sports, and, uh, and I was kind of, I enjoyed homeschooling, but there was a, a part of me that wanted to experience um, the rest of the world and make friends in a public school setting. And so as I went there, um, I talked my parents into getting me uh, 
a smartphone and I wanted to be cool like everyone else. And uh, so this, this was kind of my way of um, becoming independent and becoming myself. Um, but I didn't realize and didn't, and my parents didn't put boundaries in there either. And so I was able to do whatever the heck I wanted and it turned into something that I um, regret doing as well. And I fell back into pornography and it started slowly um, and then it just took off and pretty soon I was in isolation again. Um, it, was a, it was a tough period of my life. And this time, um, my youth group was able to impact me. And so my youth pastor had this guys event and girls event. And so the girls would go off with the female youth pastor, or one of them, and the guys would all stay with Scott. And he was able to talk to us about um, real issues in life. And a lot of the seniors went up and talked about some of the things that they had been dealing with, including sexual addiction, pornography, um, drugs, and alcohol. And, and so all of these guys are just kind of breaking down. And I'm sitting there like, what the heck's going on? I'm a freshman. Like, is this normal high school? Like, do people actually do this? Like, I have these problems too, but I would never talk about them. And, uh, and so as these guys are discussing their, um, their life stories and, and what's going on, I ended up able to talk to the youth pastor afterward. And we started meeting every week um, for the next four years of high school. And I was able to beat my addiction to pornography. Um, at least in my mind, I thought it was over with, I thought it was done, and I didn't think that it would ever come back. Um, but then college happened, and there is a huge transition going into college, where if any of you know, um, you become a lot more independent, you can kind of make your life however you want, and your parents kind of drop off in how much they can control, and so you have to make your decisions for yourself. And freshman year of college, I did not do a great job, and fell back into pornography. Um, my roommate was constantly out of the room, uh, and I had a smartphone um, that I didn't have any boundaries on, I didn't have any restrictions on, and I was um, easily allowed to, to do whatever the heck I wanted again. And uh, it took some of my best friends now, but at that time I didn't know them, um, where they kind of coaxed me into going to this um, event in South, my, my residence hall, um, at Indiana Wesley, and they coaxed me into going to this thing called Porn and Pancakes, where a, a speaker would come in and he would talk, and then they would serve pancakes, and everyone who came got to enjoy a meal. It was kind of a weird event. I didn't really understand it, but uh, <laughs> but uh, the point the point was uh, was was needed. And uh, a lot of these people that came, um, they they really did a great job telling their stories, um, giving guys hope um, that there was an opportunity for redemption if they were struggling with this. And I was right there and needed that. And uh, I was able to form an accountability group. I became one of the first at Indiana Westland to be a part of this. Um, I was able to enjoy uh, some of the best friendships I've ever had with guys through this and uh, um, able to experience a lot of freedom. And so this was two years ago that we started this. Um, I'm able, I've been a an accountability group leader now for two years. Uh, I've been organized in a group called Reclaiming Eros. Um, and if you guys know what Eros is, it's the word for um, erotic or sexual or romantic love. And, uh, and so this is our way of, of sharing that we want people to, to find the real meaning of how God designed love to be and not the, the fake artificial love um, that the, that the, uh, the world um, creates through pornography and, and sexual addiction. And, and so this is, uh, this is now a year and 10 months that I've been free from pornography. And this is a, a pretty cool, thank you.
a pretty cool time for me. Um, and I think that the difference um, was I've experienced so much change in my life, uh, and college does that. But beyond that, um, I feel like my relationship with God has grown. Um, suddenly now I'm not afraid to have conversations. I'm not afraid to, uh, to get up on stage and to talk about my life and my struggles. And I, and I own up to the things that I did, and, and I didn't push them off on other people or on a, a father who... Yeah, all the other stuff there. Like, I didn't play the victim card. I, I owned up for what I've done. And I think that um, being in accountability and being in community with guys where I can share my story and share my struggles and, uh, and work through some of these things, it's so important, and it really is. Um, finally, I would like to, to close with kind of a lead into our next session um, regarding parenting. I know that this is a, a big topic of of our generation is that kids are exposed so early and how do you parent? And I don't have the answers, um, but I know that as a, a child, it was really difficult to be raised in a home where my parents wanted me to be the perfect kid, that they wanted me to be sheltered, they wanted me to be in their, um, in their house and raised with a godly foundation, and they did not want me to be exposed to pornography. And so how, uh, after all of their careful planning and um, through homeschooling and everything else, how was I still allowed to be a part of, of the world and to fall into pornography. And that's a really tough subject. And all I can say is for the parents out there, um, try to have a relationship with your kid. I know that I needed that. I needed uh, parents who I could just talk to and share anything with. And I really did not feel that way until recently in life. I didn't feel like I could tell my mom or my dad uh, much about what was going on just because life was so tough for me. Uh, and I, I felt so isolated and I felt so ashamed. And uh, if kids know that you're there for them no matter what, and they can tell you anything, that will just go so far. And so um, that's all I have to say. Thanks, Brock. Um, yeah, I, I hope you're getting the message here that, um, you know, there are people who uh, have been perhaps where you are right now uh, in this situation and, and have found freedom have found deliverance from this. So it is possible. So even though we hear some very sobering and difficult news, uh, like Josh was saying last night, don't be too discouraged by that because there is hope and there is opportunity to change. Um, okay, so Alyssa Smith, this is Lisa's daughter, and um, Alyssa is going to talk to us about parenting in a pornified culture. She is a personal strategy and parenting coach officially. So I'm glad to have you here, Alyssa. Let's give her a hand. All right, I'm going to try and make sure that I take care of my time up here. I don't know if you guys have seen it, but there's the cutest little pup up here. It's a little comfort doggy. Okay, is the clicker around up here? Okay, perfect. All right, guys, so... There's been lots of really good news this weekend, right? <laughs> the effects of pornography, what's happening, what's coming. It's really overwhelming. Um, I am uh, really excited to be here tonight to talk to you about um, how to, or, or to give some ideas about how to parent in a culture like this. Um, we've heard some really courageous um, testimonials. Just kidding. And there we go. 
really um, courageous testimonials this weekend. It's really a tough topic to talk about. One of the themes that I'm going to talk to you guys about tonight is shame and how we can, because pornography is innately a shameful thing for many people who use it have been exposed accidentally or on purpose. If, if we can take the shame away, um, as was just mentioned by our courageous testimonial, it goes a long way. So there's hope. Okay, are you guys hearing me? There's hope. So this is my beautiful masterpiece. That's Ethan. He's four. And as soon as I found out I was pregnant, I started researching. I'm one of those. <laughs> so I wanted to know what age should my kid have a smartphone? For whatever random reason, when I was pregnant, that was one of the things that I researched. And so I really got kind of geeked out with all of the statistics that are horrifying about when kids are being exposed to things that they should never be exposed to. But <clears throat> there's so much hope, and we're going to get to that. We're going to talk about some of the hard stuff first. So first and foremost, I'm a super proud mama. Uh, I'm a certified life coach. I've been coaching for over a decade now. Uh, my specialty is in personal strategy and in parenting. Personal strategy uh, comes into play. My main line of coaching is helping women come out of crisis, whether they're currently in crisis or they were in crisis. Um, I work with a lot of partners of essays. Um, I am personally a partner, a recovering partner of an, of an essay, a, a sex addict. Um, and then from that coaching really, of course, I was doing all my own research on the side, really trying to figure out how to parent my son well through all of this, and found that I wasn't the only one. So I started getting very serious about what can I offer in this category to my clients and others. So first, we're going to talk about the damages of porn. You guys have heard a lot about that this weekend. We've seen some amazing you know, brain scans and look at neuropathways and all the different kinds of things. I'm going to talk to you from a kid-oriented perspective, what the, da the damages are. One of my um, inspirations right now, um, the, one of the people that's doing a lot in the field of um, helping families and parents do th things to get their kids raised well in this pornified culture is Gail Dines. Um, I would highly recommend her website, Culture Reframed. She says, parents have two choices in today's culture. Number one, to educate their children about healthy sex and the damage of porn, or to let the porn industry do their education. Neither one of those are super fun, right? <laughs> I don't, I mean, I'm not looking forward to the day that I actually have to talk to my son about, yes, people do make videos of people having sex and people watch that as a substitute for emotional intimacy. Not looking forward to that conversation. But if I don't have that conversation, someone else is going to have it, and it's not going to have the right outcome. 88% of boys, 76% of girls, have been exposed to pornography by high school. A lot of it's accidental. We're going to talk about that. There are three things that this does. It actually damages and stunts the brain, just like the brain scans we've seen. If you were here last night, you saw that a heroin-affected brain looks very, very similar to a porn-affected brain. It causes trauma. We've heard a lot about PTSD the last two nights. The first speaker tonight did an amazing job of summarizing what that looks like. 
And number three, it creates an inability to have any emotionally intimate relationship, romantic or otherwise. All of that can happen by age 10. Okay, so talking about the brain damage, the frontal lobe, which is the part of the brain that has been talked about with all of the, it's all, all the executive function, the cause and effect um, capacity that we have in our brain. It's, even without pornography, it's not fully developed. It's one of the last things to develop in the brain. At the age of 25 is normally when that is fully developed. You can make decisions, which is, by the way, I know that we may have some students here tonight. Um, the fact that we expect everyone to know what they're doing with their life by age 18 is preposterous, by the way. <laughs> so please take that pressure off yourself. Um, but when porn affects a person, when they've been watching porn, have been accidentally or on purpose exposed to it, um, that development gets stunted because of the holes in the brain that we saw last night on those scans. Um, another thing that happens with the brain damage, confusing chemical responses cause a compulsion to view again, even for a child who did not look for this, didn't, wasn't interested in it, and then was exposed. Because of the trauma response, they will have a chemical response. Plus, if they're in a stage of life, which, I mean, puberty is hard enough, guys. But now if we add in this chemical substance that is available for free anonymously online, I mean, you're messing with chemicals. It's not just like I'm looking at pictures. It's like my brain has a chemical cycle that starts upon viewing. So it's a really confusing thing that happens even to kids at a young age who are exposed. They have the compulsion to view again. Inappropriate neuropathways begins, begin to bond, um, and they're reinforced if there are multiple viewings. So then we talk about the trauma damage. Um, we talked about the brain scan, actual PTSD occurs, the PTSD response, flashbacks, obsession, depression, anxiety, hypervigilance, loss of interest in normal things, isolation. If it's left untreated, it goes catastrophic. Addiction is nearly inevitable. We heard last night that there are a few things that are addictive to people who are not predisposed genetically or in their life to addiction. Pornography is at the top of that list. Suicidality, violence to self and others. We've seen, I, I wish I had like six hours to talk to you about all the statistics, but that would be no fun for anyone. But one of the um, studies that I just read actually last night, I hadn't seen anyone do this conclusive of a study before, but I didn't get it into the presentation in time. It is someone just looked at the percentage of the population of teens who are sexting, sending sexual texts to their significant others, um, and the link between those things and suicidality. And it's gone... It, um, the person who did the research, she had done the research over like a 20-year period. And she was used to the numbers going up sort of gradually. And she said in the last five years, it shot through the roof and paralleled the numbers of children who are active sexually online. Porn kills relationship. This is the third area. 90%, we've heard this before this weekend, 90% um, of the top porn sites are based on violent sexual acts against women. Um, sorry about this slide. Um, basically, the middle one says, uh, children normalize what they see immediately. Even if they are shocked and traumatized, especially if they are shocked and traumatized, they normalize it and say, something must be wrong with me if I'm feeling wrong about this. 
Therefore, not only are they confused, hurt, traumatized, but the shame comes in. I am something wrong because of what I saw. And what does this say about the world around me? One of the most horrifying pieces of this, and Lori touched on this, that uh, an adult addict has likely seen horrifying trauma in their own life. Um, when that starts as a child, if it starts with sexual trauma, pornography or whatever, a child will automatically, you know how, how they just copy everything you do? I mean, my son has these great little things that he says right now, and I'm like, did, did you think of that? Like, I'm trying to think of, oh no, that's aunt so-and-so. You said that because she says that. How much more then, if they have this trauma memory that's forming in their brain, they will go and act the things they saw almost every time. Porn promotes sexuality without emotional intimacy. It encourages a concept called intimacy anorexia. You can Google that. Narcissism, of course, dehumanization of others in order to use them. It conditions them to become users or to be used. With these things at work, there's no possible way for a real relationship to work. So how do we prepare them, okay? Some of the, uh, us lucky ones, I mean, there's a, I know that we have some parents in the audience who, you know, your, your kids are grown out of the house, almost out of the house, and this is just coming on the scene as something that we're all supposed to be knowing in our parenting. So I feel very blessed that my child is so young and I can start so young and I have so much information and I'm eager to pass that on in any way that I can. Ages zero to six, yes, you need to talk to them this young. Zero to 18, unless you want the porn industry to do the education, we need to be talking to our kids. So are we gonna, am I gonna sit my four-year-old down and talk about, okay, so there are these sex scenes and da da da, no, of course not, right? So um, the important reason behind talking to them, and I'm going to give you some scripts in just a second that will take the terror out of this for you. The average age of exposure to porn is seven years old, and that's actually getting younger. That's an old statistic. Um, the, the thing that's so terrifying right now is that one in 10 hits on porn, the top porn websites is a child under 10 years old. That's likely an accident. Sometimes it's because they've typed in porn to figure out what it is. Pornhub.com um, is just one of the top hardcore porn websites, and according to their own statistics, they get over 1,000 hits per second. So if one in 10 of those 1,000 of those hits per second is a child under 10, that means that 6,000 children have been exposed to porn in the last minute of me talking. It's happening. This is happening. We can't stop it. All we can do is prepare them for it. I said this in the parenting breakout last night. I personally, <laughs> this is so unhealthy. I would personally love to control every little input into my son from now until when he walks out the door at age 18. I would love that. I would like for him never to have to be exposed to porn, and I wish I could make that choice. But unless I just want to be an ostrich with my head in the sand, I have to recognize that the best that I could do for him is to prepare him to make the decisions on his own when it comes to time, to give him the tools that it takes to not allow the poison to continue once he's been exposed. Okay, so as soon as they can talk, as soon as they read stories, there are some great books, and if you were at the breakout last night, you saw some of these. The best one that I've found 
And trust me, I've been looking at all of them. <laughs> the best one I've found, Good Pictures, Bad Pictures, Junior. Go to a website called protectyoungminds.org. They have a wealth of information. They have concrete resources. There are a lot of great websites out there. This is the one where the woman who's behind the website wrote this book. Super simple, never mentions the word pornography. Teaches children the definition of what's okay to look at and what's not. Good pictures, bad pictures. Bad pictures include pictures of private parts. Keep private parts private. That's a perfectly appropriate message for a three-year-old. That's about the age that he started to understand this is, this is something I'm in charge of. I'm in charge of not of keeping private parts private. And if I see someone else's privates, they give you a little, a little um, protocol in here. Turn, run, and tell. My son knows exactly what he's going to do the first time he sees a bad picture. He's going to turn from it to stop the poison's effect. He's going to run, get the heck out of there, close the computer, get out of the room, walk out of the house, go find mom, go find somebody safe, and tell them. And the first response on our part as parents has to be, I am so glad you told me. That is wonderful that you told me. I want to help. I'm going to be here for you. And here's what we're going to do. So keeping them safe at home in a way, this is getting trickier and trickier. Um, parental controls, of course, screen time limits. Ages zero to six, you know, they really shouldn't be doing a lot of screen time. Um, their brains are developing. We want to make sure that their attention spans are nice and long as they develop. Um, never allow them to have unsupervised screen time. Now, I'm not saying you need to be sitting and watching Daniel Tiger with this little person every time he watches, but make sure that you're not just allowing them to scroll through Amazon Prime, to scroll, certainly not YouTube Kids. I don't know if you know all the terrifying things about YouTube Kids, but trust me, there are terrifying things. Um, it is not closely monitored. Um, even PBS kids, no, nothing that I know of that is sexually inappropriate, but inappropriate themes, inappropriate attitudes, um, be, just be really careful about what they're watching, but don't ever trust YouTube kids unconditionally. Um, when they're away, ask the questions. This is the uncomfortable part of being a parent. We come across as maybe prudes. We come across as controlling. Whatever that is, it is worth it. It's worth it. If another mom says that, you know, my son can't come back to her house because I'm too picky about how she, okay, fine, all right, thank you for the information. That is a great piece of information for me that you don't value the same things I value. No problem. Let's move on. What kind of screen time do you allow? What are the guidelines that you use to protect them? This, these are appropriate questions no matter the age of the child, basically up through age 12, 13. When in doubt, say no to play dates. Your child's absolute safety is the priority over anyone's feelings, including, by the way, probably the most painful one, your child's disappointment. Okay? We're the parents. We're the parents. It's our job to protect them. Protect and comfort. You're going to hear that again in a minute. Ages 6 to 11, talk frequently. Hopefully you've already read them, the good pictures, bad pictures, junior. There is a good, bad, good pictures, bad pictures, um, regular version. It's called porn, porn Proofing Today's Youth. Okay, so this is the next level. Um, it's appropriate about age six. So go through scripts for their different scenarios. If they accidentally stumble on a bad picture, what do they do? If, they, if a friend shows them a bad picture. A friend showed me a bad picture, like the year the internet was invented. 
She, she's a good kid. Her parents are good kids. We were all friends. We were on teams together. Her cousin sent it to her. She snuck me over to her computer and showed me a bad picture. I didn't even know what I was looking at. And it was the shock of my life. And of course, I never told anybody about it. I had no idea what, I don't even have a grid for that. How were my parents supposed to know? I mean, how were parents supposed to know right when the internet came on the scene that they needed to talk to their kids about this? So if a friend shows them, if they, were, um, if they see a bad picture in a magazine section, I mean, guys, let's be honest, the stuff that we do allow just out in public isn't all that appropriate for these, this age group. Um, I have a friend whose daughter came home from her grandmother's house and had seen a bad picture. There was a, a woman who was basically topless in a, just a, like a People magazine or something. Kids are traumatized by these things. We've got to give them tools. We've got to arm them. So encourage them to follow the turn, run, tell. That's got to be the bottom line. They need to be able to take care of themselves when it happens. Begin to educate them in more detail about how pictures and videos can harm them. It's poison. That's how the first book talks about it. It shows like pictures of household poisons. And it talks about, you know, you, if you drink these things, this is what it does. Well, if you take this in, it's poison to your brain. Now that you all have seen the brain scans of what happens, when pornography is at work on your brain, it leaves the holes, right? We can tell our children with confidence, this will poison your, your brain. It will make it stop growing the way it's supposed to. It's going to be poison to their relationships, poison to their sports, their extracurricular activities, their school, their life goals. They're starting to think about those things at this age. Protecting them away and at home, parental controls, time limits on screen time, no private screen time, no screen time at night. This is the age to start enforcing that. 6 to 11, there's no need for screen time at night. There isn't in high school either, but if you start at this age and talk to them about it, it'll be an easier road when they're a teen. Away, when they're out, screen the friend's parents, um, their internet guidelines, how much supervision. Parents, at the, when, they're, when your kid is like old enough to stay home by themselves, it's really tempting as a parent, you know, as I understand it, to just really trust that they could probably do the things, right? They straight a kid, you know, they're, they could stay home by themselves, they could watch a brother or sister, 11 or 12. We still need to be supervising their screen time, still, especially at this age. They're coming into puberty, they're curious, they're seeing things, they're hearing things, we can't control all the other influences. Um, the last one on here is to con um, consider no overnights. This seems like so countercultural and like so sacrilegious. Well, I had told somebody that I had decided that my son's not going to do overnights except at his cousin's house indefinitely. Because why would I send my child to someone else's house during the most vulnerable part of his day when I don't know whether or not a well-meaning parent might walk away for an hour, two hours, might not be sleeping nearby, or heaven forbid there would be someone unsafe in that household that I don't, we can't tell, guys. It's not like people walk around with a sign that says, um, I have risky behavior. The people with the riskiest behavior are often the ones who are looking the most safe on the outside. Okay, so no interactive online games ever. Um, I'm trying to keep an eye on my time here. I'd, I'll just say basically about this. I don't know if you guys, do you guys know the, the app Musical? Um, I don't know how you say this, musical.ly, Musical.ly. Do you know this one, anybody? You guys don't know it? Okay, I have one hand, a couple hands. All right, so you guys know what I'm talking about, right? It's a, it's a karaoke app. Basically, people can send 15 seconds of karaoke. Seems very, you know, sort of innocuous. Um, it's not. 
Your child should not be doing interactive online games ever, and yet parents give in and they don't want to be the mean parent. And there was a story of one such mom who had a nine-year-old who opened an account with her nine-year-old, put a picture of herself and her nine-year-old as the profile picture, set it to private. The first messages they got, apparently you can still direct message someone, was from a predator. Said, hi, this is Justin Bieber. If you want to talk to me for five minutes, send me a picture, picture of your hmm <laughs> Send a couple more messages badgering. Everyone's doing it. One of your friends has already done this. Within 24 hours. Dozens of videos. Um, the New Daily, it's an Australian newspaper, did a, just a test. They, left, they opened an account just to see what would happen. And um, within... Um, let me see, within a half an hour of logging on and making a profile, dozens of sexual videos were sent to their inbox. Anything where you're interacting with people that you don't know online, and even people you do know sometimes, but an app that allows strangers to interact with your child is not appropriate, ever. Uh, another suggestion is no sole possession of a smartphone or device until age 11 or 12 or older. Um, okay, so moving on to preteens and teens, the smaller the screen, the more danger there is. It's harder to keep track of what's happening. With possession of smartphones and devices, you can re um, I highly, highly recommend a signed contract. The reason being that we've heard from the testimonials this weekend, the people who are trapped in this desperately don't want to be alone in it. And the more help and guidance and accountability we can offer with love, compassion, and no shame, the better. CultureReframe.org has a great one of these. It's a very extensive one. You can customize it however you want. Please do. Check their devices every day. Here's another thing that's controversial, and some of the, the students in here, may, some of the kids may not be super excited about this. A parent has the right to look at everything their child owns at any time. End of story. It is my job to make sure that I am not abdicating the support role that I'm supposed to give my son. And if there's something that he can't tell me, something that's on his phone, something that's hiding, I have every right to go and look for it. I want him to know see, a lot of the stories of people who have become addicted or who have been exposed on a regular basis have to do with no one was watching. Why would I curb the behavior? Now, it's not super cool to feel like your parent is going like, to look at all your stuff every day, but wouldn't it make you think twice about using? So I'm going to keep my son safe, and I have every right to look at everything he owns because it's mine. He's not going to be happy about that sometimes. That doesn't have to stop me from taking care of him. So they're likely already exposed at this, at this age, 11 to 18. They're almost, uh, it's like almost 80% um, in, in boys, or it's almost 90% in boys and 80% in girls that they've already been exposed by high school. There's a 1 in 14 chance of a child just doing research for an assignment, typing in a misspelled URL and stumbling on a porn site by accident. That was done by a computer security study a couple years ago. If you've never discussed porn and you have teenagers, define bad pictures. Pictures of people's parts that are supposed to be private or videos of people's parts that are supposed to be private. Have you seen any of those? Start a conversation. Start somewhere if you haven't had the talk about that. 
I, just asking for information, no consequences, just I just want to know. Because the thing is, if I'm talking to my son, I care about how this is affecting you and I want to be there to help. Ask regularly if they've seen images that left them feeling scared, sad, or upset. If they've been using for a while, they will not be in touch with those, as we heard earlier this evening. So just because they say no doesn't mean they're not watching. If they say they have seen bad pictures or videos, the first thing and only thing that you need to say at that moment is, I am so glad you told me I would like to help and I am here for you. There's no consequence. There's no consequence. Help come up with the scripts. Where, where, did you, where were you exposed? How could I help you with that situation if it comes up again? What do you think needs to be done? What, what do you think would help make this go better for you next time? Do you, do you want to have something in mind to say when your friend says this or sends this? If they have flashbacks and trauma responses, practice stop the thought and replace it. If you actually picture, so I don't, I don't if you were here last night, you heard this, that the um, trauma brain, the, the survival brain where the, that registers all the trauma, doesn't listen to words. It listens to pictures a lot of the time or like deep breaths. So if they're having flashbacks or a trauma response, take a deep breath, picture a stop sign, and then reroute the thoughts. Practice, it takes practice. Conversation starters, what kinds of activities do you do online? Do you ever chat with anyone you've never met in person? When was the last time you saw pornography or a bad picture? A neutral, non-shaming tone, practice this, parents, it's hard. <laughs> practice, when you're hurting because your kid is doing something that's hurting them, that's the worst possible feeling in the universe. But they won't understand that. All they're responsible for is responding to the love or shame or whatever it is that's coming from you. Verify the results of your talk on their devices. Okay, so I'm, I just have a few minutes left. If you walk away with nothing else from this presentation, walk away with this slide. There is new research coming through about the concept of attachment. Attachment happens in utero between a baby and mother and in infancy between the baby and the mother the father, the, the safe caregivers. Many of us had that attachment bond broken by one thing or another. Trauma looks different in lots of ways. You know, we, we learned this weekend about big T trauma versus little t trauma. It could be something that totally overwhelms my senses and crushes me, might not bother you at all. But it, it traumatized me. It, 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 it was an attachment wound for me. Most children grow up with some attachment wounds which is why it's so important, because we can't be perfect at attachment as parents. We have to just keep trying to get better at it, okay? So attachment, for that working definition, it, it is protection and comfort, and it sets up the foundation for the rest of their lives, all of their decisions and relationships. Attachment is shame-free pursuit, regardless, regardless of flaws, it's safety and soothing. It's those, always those two components. It's safe and it's comforting. If you can manage as a parent to do those two things, you win at the end of the day. Your child will have setbacks. They will have flaws. They will make mistakes. They will make choices that are not good choices. If you come after them no matter what, I'm here, I love you, you can't push me away, I won't let you push me away, I'm staying here with you, I'm in this with you, I won't leave you, I won't leave you, I won't leave you. 
it doesn't matter what choices they make, they will always come out on top. Porn and overuse of internet, again with the new statistics that are coming out around the sexting and the texting, the percentage of time, I think the, um, the average amount of time, if I remember this from what I read yesterday, is 90 minutes a day of texting by students in high school across the United States. 90 minutes a day of texting. They're doing it in class. They're doing it at the dinner table. They're doing it wherever they can. It, it's, like, it's like a need. It's how they communicate. It's isolation. Attachment to the safe people in their life means connection. Every time, don't go for the right behavior. Go for the connection, okay? Don't go for them behaving in a certain way that's perfect. Go for the connection. I'm here for you. I won't leave you. I don't care what you do. I'm here for you. I won't leave you. And I won't let you hurt yourself. Signs a child may be watching porn, unrestricted access to the internet, changes in behavior, more isolation, privacy, depression. Um, I'm going to skip through a couple of these. I want this to stick with you. Parents usually underestimate by 90% the amount of porn that their kids see, and they usually imagine it is the kind of porn from 15 years ago. A child puts porn into Google search, and two clicks can be watching a rape, live rape. Don't underestimate the danger of this stuff. It's more important than the feelings that happen during that talk. Don't be in denial. If you find one image of pornography on your child's device, it has been going on for far longer than you know. By the time it comes to discovery, there is a root system. Go after the roots. Get the connection. Guard your household. We have Covenant Eyes. We have um, Circle Home by Disney. I love that one. It's a more expensive option if you get the whole shebang, but it allows you to turn off the internet for certain devices at a certain time. It enforces bedtime. It's amazing. It's like Mickey's there to do your personal battle. Um, check your browser history of all computers. I don't care if it's your straight-A student. I don't care if it's the child that never causes a problem, okay? Check all the browser history. Nothing they have is private from you. Put a tracking app. This is another one that's super important, guys. In the age of addictions, kids are going to be at places that they're not supposed to be if they get caught up in this stuff. You want them to have a reason not to. Put a tracking app as a, con as a re um, necessity when they get a, a new phone. Um, no internet or phone use. Set the time limit. 9 o'clock, all phones get turned in at the family charging station. End of, end of story, end of day. No electronic devices in the bathroom, in private, ever. Help a child who's been exposed to porn set boundaries around how it happened. Help them focus on outside activities. Get a therapist involved. Consider EMDR and trauma therapy, mindfulness without electronics, emotional intimacy. I'm going to leave you with this last exercise. Feelings protocol, okay? This is a super easy way to build back the part of the brain that is damaged by pornography, the part that gets you in touch with feelings and emotional intimacy. Each person chooses two emotions. Did you guys know that there are like, I don't know, 150 different emotions? I'm pretty sure that like the first time I ever really looked at this topic, I was like, um, anger, sad, happy, 
am I missing any? <laughs> and, and there are like a million different ways that you could feel. And so I, we have like a feelings chart that we work from. My son looks at it. You know, I want him to understand. We're developing emotional intimacy as we go. It's never too late to start that. So each person chooses two emotions. You tell something that happened today or recently with that emotion. Cannot involve anybody else at the table, by the way, because we don't want family fights to come as a result of your feelings protocol. Um, and then tell the first time you remember feeling that way. Adults too, parents too. There is so much hope around this. Keep in mind, connection wins every time. Shame-free boundaries wins every time. Okay? This is what I do. Please contact me. My email is up there. I've got cards if you want to take home a card. Thank you so much for listening. We are the forerunners. This is on us. It's going to be coming. There's a tide, and we're going to bring the hope. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was really helpful uh, as a parent. Um, just really, really helpful information. Um, well, uh, I was with you last night. My name is Josh Hollowell. If you're new tonight, uh, I am a pastor of City Hope Fellowship in uh, uh, Muncie, real close by. Uh, was on staff here at New Life and then uh, planted our daughter church. And uh, tonight I want to talk, I want to bring some things home for us before we move into our panel and some things that we're going to talk about. And so uh, last night I shared some of the injustice side of things. Tonight I really want to bring the good news. Uh, I am a preacher. This is what I do. I, I'm, I, I'm a Bible guy. That's what I do. Uh, we bring in experts to do all the things that I'm like, you guys talk way more technical than I can. I'm a Bible guy. That's what we do. So uh, I'm going to try and address some of these things from the perspective of the scripture. Um, but but I, I want to open us with, with thinking about this, uh, the lyrics of this song. Um, we sing this song a lot at City Hope. Uh, There's power in the name of Jesus to break every chain. And it goes on and on. There's a lot of repetition. I like, I like repetitious songs because it helps me to actually like think about this. Uh, but there's power in the name of Jesus to break every chain. But what if it feels like the chain stays on? Because given what we've talked about this weekend, it seems like maybe that's not true. Maybe that's not true given what we know about pornography in the church and some of the, the testimonies we've heard. Like it doesn't sound like every chain is broken unless we're saying that large percentage of the church are just really not Christians. They're not really, they, they haven't really experienced Jesus. But I don't think that's what we want to say. That large chunks of the church have not really experienced Jesus. Or I don't think we want to say that the name of Jesus isn't actually enough. Like is Jesus actually enough to deal with pornography addiction? What, what, what do we say about that? Now, if you've been with us all weekend and you think there are some, some, uh, some tension to that question, this is what we're going to try and explore tonight. And I think we can actually avoid both of those things, but I do think that this issue draws out something that I think plagues the church in America today. I think oftentimes we 
fall into, uh, we fall sort of subtly back into an ancient heresy called Gnosticism. Uh, Gnosticism was this heresy that taught that there was a divide between the spiritual and the material or the physical. The spiritual was good and the physical was bad. So there were two ways that this played out. One was in extreme asceticism. Uh, extreme moralism, disciplining the body, beating the body, because the body is bad, the body is bad, and I need to submit it to the spiritual. The other was ignoring the body. You can do whatever you want. Sexual immorality doesn't matter, because only the spiritual matters. Now, I think sometimes we slip into this in in a number of ways when it comes to pornography. It's sort of subtle. It's not full-blown, but it's subtle. And, and the way that we fall into this is we approach pornography sometimes as a spiritual-only issue. Jesus forgives us of sin, therefore we should walk away from sin. And when I experience Jesus and still struggle with pornography, somehow something is broken in me. And I experience incredible shame. And so I'm never telling another person again. Right? Because it, it seems like when the Bible talks about us fleeing sin, it seems like these are absolute things. And so if I continue to struggle in this, I don't know what to do with myself. So I'm certainly not going to tell another person. Right? And so we fall into this sort of shaming tendency that Jesus forgives so I ought to have beaten this. And so I just continue to fight as hard as I can, but it doesn't seem to go anywhere. The other subtle way that we fall into this is we actually just don't think it's that big of a deal. We ignore it as though only the spiritual things matter. As long as the other parts of my life are fine, it's okay that I have this one thing. It's my sort of thorn in the flesh thing. That's not what that passage is actually talking about. It's certainly not what that passage is talking about, right? Like, it's this, thing that, it's this thing that continues to hamper me down, but it's okay because, you know, I've, I've got my other spiritual disciplines going, and, and so I just sort of ignore that, right? It ignores the connection between the physical and the spiritual. And I think we want to avoid both of those, and I think the key to this is understanding some things about the resurrection. So we're going to talk about the resurrection today. We will all be transformed, resurrection and recovery. How does the resurrection inform our recovery? Now, a couple of opening remarks. As I said, I'm a pastor. Uh, I'm coming at this from the angle of uh, what, what does the Bible say about these things? And so if you're here today, tonight, and you've been here this weekend, obviously this is being held in a church. We're coming from a Christian perspective. But if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, we're so glad that you are here. And I pray that there will be things that you will learn from this, even if you're not a Christian. You will learn some things about uh, recovery from even this message, I hope. But, but I want you to know we are coming at this from a worldview that says that Jesus is real and the most important thing ever. And that's the, that's the, the uh, starting point for us. But we believe that all of these other things that we talked about matter. And I'm going to try and reconcile those two things. Because oftentimes in the church we kind of just talk about these spiritual things. And we kind of leave this like, like brain scan thing over here. It's like we're, we're not dealing with that. We're not talking about those things. Right? And, and I want to reconcile those two things in your mind. So that you can understand that, that uh, maybe, maybe some dissonance that you feel about this reality. Is that cool? 
All right. So how does the resurrection inform our recovery? So we're gonna, I'm going to read a section uh, from 1 Corinthians 15, a couple of uh, passages. But someone may ask, how will the dead be raised? What kind of bodies will they have? What a foolish question. I love Paul. He, he just tells it like it is. When you put a seed into the ground, it doesn't grow into a plant unless it dies first. And what you put in the ground is not the plant that will grow, but only a bare seed of wheat or whatever you are planting. Then God gives it the new body he wants it to have. A different plant goes from, grows from each kind of seed. Similarly, there are different kinds of flesh. One for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are also bodies in the heavens and bodies on the earth. The glory of the heavenly bodies is different from the glory of the earthly bodies. The sun has one kind of glory, while the moon and the stars each have another kind. And even the stars differ from each other in their glory. It is the same way with the resurrection of the dead. Our earthly bodies are planted in the ground when we die, but they will be raised to live forever. Our bodies are buried in brokenness, but they will be raised in glory. They are buried in weakness, but they will be raised in strength. They are buried as natural human bodies, but they will be raised as spiritual bodies. For just as there are natural bodies, there are also spiritual bodies. I want you to notice some of the contrast there. Brokenness, glory, weakness, strength, natural, spiritual. The scriptures tell us the first man, Adam, became a living person. But the last Adam, that is Christ, is a life-giving spirit. What comes first is the natural body, then the spiritual body comes later. Adam, the first man, was made from the dust of the earth, while Christ, the second man, came from heaven. Earthly people are, are like the earthly man, and heavenly people are like the heavenly man. Just as we know we are now like the earthly man, we will someday be like the heavenly man. What I am saying, dear brothers and sisters, is that our physical bodies cannot inherit the kingdom of God. These dying bodies cannot inherit what will last forever. But let me reveal to you a wonderful secret. We will not all die, but we will all be transformed. It will happen in a moment, in the blink of an eye, when the last trumpet is blown. For when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to live forever, and we who are living will also be transformed. For our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. Our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies. Then, when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, this scripture will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? For sin is the sting that results in death. And the law gives, it, gives sin its power. But thank God, he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, my dear brothers and sisters, be strong and immovable. Always work enthusiastically for the Lord for you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. Friends, I hope that this good news is going to wash over us tonight. We have heard a lot of startling things, and I want us to hear the good news of Jesus tonight. Let me pray for us real quick. God, thank you for your word. I pray that you would make it uh, fruitful. God, that you would work mightily in it by your spirit and that you would transform us through it we pray in Christ's name amen all right so there's a bunch of things in here that I want us to key in on but but we only have time to key in on a few aspects of this a few aspects of what this is what Paul is doing here in this letter that he has written is explaining some things about the resurrection of the dead 
The biblical narrative says that, that this is not the end goal of life, but that Jesus, who came once to die for sin and to rise from the dead, will come again to bring his people into the new heavens and new earth and to right all wrongs and to judge those outside of his kingdom and to condemn them to their eternal destination. That's the biblical worldview. And so when he talks about this idea of the resurrection of the dead, he's mainly focusing on that group of those who are his people that will enter into paradise with him. So if you are here tonight and you are not a Christian, you're not trusting in Jesus, friends, when Jesus returns, that will not be the good news day. That will be the day where all of your sins against the Lord, are, are, you are come are going to be held accountable for them. But today is not that day. And so you can repent of your sins and trust in the Lord Jesus and receive forgiveness from your, for your sins and be welcomed in on that day. If you have questions about what that means, please talk to me afterwards. I would love to share more with you about that. But what he's talking about here is the reality of what that new heavens, new earth is going to be like. Now, I don't know about you, but growing up hearing about heaven in church sounded really boring. Like, it just didn't sound like a place I wanted to go. Because it sounded like we'd all be like kind of floating around on clouds singing all the time. And I can't sing very well, so that sounded really terrible. Right? Anyone else have that experience? That's not at all what it's like. We are given new bodies. We live in a new physical existence. It is glorious. There is a wedding supper of the Lamb. There is this incredible feast. There is physical reality. There is so much that I would love to get into that I can't. I'm going off script here. All right. But, but there is so much more, and he's talking about that thing that will happen. And yet there's this tension in this text that there are already some things that have happened, right? He's writing to these folks and he's saying, what you do for the Lord is not useless. The Lord has transformed you. He's already talked about the things throughout this letter of all the things that God has done. And there's this tension in the New Testament of this thing called the already not yet. Jesus has already come. He has already conquered sin and Satan in the cross and in his own resurrection. Jesus rose from the dead. That is victory. And he gives that victory to all his people. Right? So that we have the power to say no to sin. Right? The New Testament has all of these things. And yet, Paul here also says that there's some things that we don't yet have. Right? Right now we're like the earthly Adam. And then we're going to be like the heavenly Adam. The last Adam. Jesus. So there's this tension, right? There's this, you already have some of these things, and yet you're still waiting for some new things. You're waiting to be transformed in this new way. There's this tension in this text around this already and not yet reality. Now, what does that mean for us? Well, well he says that we will be transformed, that when Jesus returns, we all get new bodies. And that's really what started this question, because the Corinthians are like, what is that like? 
And he doesn't really answer the detailed questions that we want him to answer, like how old will we be and like all, right, all those questions that we have. He doesn't answer that. But he says spiritual bodies is what we're going to have. Well, what does that mean? Now, now, you might be thinking, well, that sounds like that thing that you were talking about earlier, about spiritual being good, physical being bad. I don't think that's what he means, and here's why. He says, we will someday be like the heavenly man. Right? When we are transformed, we're going to be like Jesus in his resurrection. What was Jesus like in his resurrection? We're going to be like Jesus. That's the important thing. Well, in Luke 24, Jesus shows up uh, with his disciples after the resurrection, and still they stood there in disbelief, filled with joy and wonder. I mean, can you imagine the looks on their faces when Jesus shows up, raised from the dead? Then he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he ate it as they watched. You see, Luke just does this incredible thing here. He describes to us a resurrected Jesus. And what does Jesus ask for? Food. Right? It's not like some spiritual thing where he's like, oh, no, 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 I don't need fish. Just ate right there. All spirit here. All spirit, right? He asked for fish. A very earthy thing, right? Christianity is this incredibly unique worldview that loves the earth and earthiness and bodies. The Lord cares so much about material things. And sometimes when we think about fighting against sin, when we think about breaking every chain, we deal only in the spiritual realm. And not in the earthy realm. But that denies this reality that we, in our transformation, will be very embodied. Right? I think sometimes we think that the resurrection means, right? We think of heaven in this like floaty cloud kind of way. That's not what it is. We need to have what I want to call an embodied spirituality. An embodied spirituality. That we are created in the image of God, embodied. Right? That God put together, by this I mean physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual, all come together. God didn't make a mistake when he created us with sexual desire and physical bodies. Sin corrupted that, yes, but God did not make a mistake. There is something so central to the embodied experience about what it means to display the image of God. Uh, Just think about this for a moment. This is how crucial this is to the Lord, an embodied experience. The second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ, left glory And came and incarnated himself into a body and then lived among us, died on a cross, endured physical challenges, and then resurrected from the dead to live as an embodied person forever. Right? Like Jesus has a physical body 
forever. That's crazy. The Lord loves that. So here's, this is so important. We're going to talk about why this is so important in a moment. But we got we to gotta stop thinking, I think, so quickly, particularly around the issue of sexuality and pornography. This internal shame begins to work in us where we begin to hate the body that God gave us. We begin to hate the desires that God gave us. We begin to despise sexuality completely. I remember moments in my own pornography addiction just hating the reality that I had any sexual desire at all. Lord, why would you do this? It's so jacked up. Why would you do this? For us to experience freedom, we have to move out of thinking that this thing, this body is all bad. Friends, when when Jesus returns and we are all transformed, you know what body is going to be resurrected? This body. The body you're in right now. Right? The seed is planted in the ground and the plant comes out of it, right? It's not like the seed is planted in the ground and then it's like, hey, look at that. That's a nice one. Let's put that one right here. Right? This is the body that God gave you, and he didn't make a mistake when he gave you that body. Now, there are problems with it, yeah, for sure. It's weak. It's going to die, right? It's going to be resurrected new, but it's not going to be fundamentally different from who I am, right? Jesus did some cool tricks with his resurrected body where he, he confused his disciples so they couldn't recognize him. But when they do recognize him, I don't know what that is, by the way. I, don't know, I, I can't explain that one. But he, he, he can do stuff like that. But when he showed himself, they re- recognized him. It wasn't like it was like, wait a second. You look better than you did before, Jesus. Like they recognized him, right? We're going to have these bodies. That's really important for us to move forward in this reality. So, And here's why this is important. Because the way in which pornography tricks us is it tricks us with shame. It tricks us with shame. Uh, And so so we need to have, I'm going to go ahead and then I'll come back to that. So it tricks us with shame. We have some pain or desire, some trigger that happens in our lives. And then that causes us to use porn. That use of porn then causes us to feel shame and guilt, which causes pain, which causes an endless cycle of using more porn. And so what we want to do is fight against that and replace that cycle with a cycle of community, discipline, and gospel. If you've been here at the Porn Kills Conference in years past, I've talked about this. Uh, The way that we move forward is the combination of these three things, gospel, discipline, and community. And I want to argue tonight, briefly, really quick, with a few uh, points, that what we need is an embodied recovery in each of these points. Gospel, discipline, and community. If we only have a couple of these things, uh, it's not going to work out. If we only have gospel and discipline... We're trying to do this thing on our own, thinking that Jesus is enough and I'm working hard, so I don't need to tell anyone else about my sin struggle. You will certainly fail. If you only have 
uh, the gospel and community. This is the group of uh, men or, or women that get together and say, hey, did you look at porn this week? Yep, so did I. Well, Jesus loves you, and see you next week. And they don't actually do anything, right? They just kind of hang out and say, well, Jesus loves you, and we're good, right? But they don't actually make any progress forward, right? And if you have this disciplined community, that's a shaming culture that says you are evil and wrong, and you did this bad thing, and I'm going to hit you over the head again and again until you stop doing this bad thing. Now, some of you have probably been a part of groups that are a combo of one of those things, and it's not good. We want to see groups that exist for the three of these things. This is the model that I use when I lead every man's battle here. Um, the group that, that comes out of here and kind of everything that we do, we want to make sure that it kind of incorporates all of these aspects. But how do we have an embodied recovery in the midst of this? Well, what does it mean to have an embodied understanding of the gospel? Well, the gospel deals with flesh and blood things. As we said, Jesus deals with flesh and blood. Jesus came in flesh and blood and then shed his blood and broke his body for our redemption. The gospel is inherently physical and not just spiritual. And so it deals with physical things. We ought to think about it in this way. Now, as you were hearing things earlier tonight and last night about brain scans and, and the way in which your body works, friends, you need to understand that God created your body and there's this connection between spirituality and physicality. What we do with our lives spiritually, right, like our spiritual disciplines like prayer and reading the Bible and all of those types of things, right, what we do with those things affects our body. And what we do with our body affects our spiritual life. There is a connection between those two things. And so, friends, we need to know those things. Just because Jesus has forgiven you of your sins does not mean that your brain has yet healed from its addictive cycle. Right? That hasn't happened yet. That doesn't mean that the blood of Jesus isn't powerful enough to remove your sin. It means that it happens through a process of your brain healing its addictive cycle. Right? It's both and. The way in which Jesus is going to heal us from our brokenness and sin is not simply by you cognitively knowing I'm forgiven of sin, but by my brain actually being restored as well as cognitively knowing my sin has been forgiven, right? It's just like any other relationship in life. If you have a fight with your friend, you can be forgiven and not instantly be back to how you were, right? It, that takes time to mend that relationship and heal that, right? With our relationship with the Lord, how do we expect that we're going to sin for 10 years against him in addictive cycles and then be like, boom, over, right now. And this is why this is so important. I talk to so many guys who feel like they're bad Christians because they're like, I can't get out of this. And part of it is, it is a process of learning and also trying to fight it in a way that's effective Versus you're trying to fight in a way that's not very effective. Because you're not dealing with some of the stuff that's going on in your brain. 
and you're only trying to fight it by like, I, like I, I had a temptation, I got to read my Bible right now, right? So, so another way in which this plays out is, is even thinking about, when it comes to understanding how the gospel works, thinking about ways in which I'm triggered and identifying those things, and some of them are very physical things. It is more likely that you will sin if you are tired or hungry or stressed, right? Really, adults are just like toddlers. We just get better at, like, not screaming when we're hungry, tired, or stressed. We just, like, sin in other ways, right? So sometimes the most godly thing that you can do is not pick up your Bible and read it, but take a nap. And then pick up your Bible and read it, right? Like we have convinced ourselves that the only way to fight sin is with spiritual activities. The reality is if you're going to set your heart towards the Lord and your life towards the Lord, you need to think about every area of your life and does it come under the Lordship of Jesus? Like what do you do with, uh, are you sleeping well? Are you eating well? Are you exercising well? Are you taking care of your body so that you, when tempted, are strong enough physically so that you can rely on the spiritual disciplines that you've been doing to actually move forward. Does that make sense? There's this deep connection between those things, and we have to move out of just over-spiritualizing every attempt to fight sin. We have to embody this reality. All right. That also means in mental and emotional, we need to deal with trauma and thoughts and thought life, and we need help with that, right? That's why we need counselors, trained counselors, to deal with those things in very real ways. And we need to avoid the shame associated with going into deep uh, areas of our life. Because Jesus isn't afraid to go there. He already knows all that. He wants to heal those things. He doesn't want to just heal the surface level things. He wants to heal the deep things. So we can go there. i got to hurry. I'm going to go over. All right. Embodied spirituality. Uh, community. Uh, physical isolation leads to spiritual isolation. That's one of the things we've talked about. All throughout the Bible, there's all these one another commands. They can only be practiced among one another. If we're going to do this fight together in moving forward, we have to be in community. And by in community, I mean embodied community with and near other people. Not just, it's great. We have incredible technology that connects us so that you can text people when you feel tempted to do things. And you can connect with others in lots of ways through technology. But that does not replace the need for over and over again, being among people who love and care about you in your recovery. Super necessary to be near people often, to be in community and to do that well together. You need to have people who understand your thoughts and your emotions. Do you process those with other people? I love that emotional protocol. That's so helpful. Like, do you have anyone in your life who knows you well enough to know your emotions and your thoughts? And if you think you can survive without that, you are fooling yourself. We're not meant to survive without that. We're meant to share that part of our life with other people in embodied community. All right. Embodied spirituality discipline. This is something I talked about already in terms of... uh, 
physical. We need exercise, sleep, rhythm, and rest. Right? This is so important. And, and one of the things that's really important is as you begin to walk out of a pornography addiction, if you're starting the process, know that it's going to be a process. And know that as soon as you start to lay aside what you've been using to medicate other problems in your life, all those other problems will rise to the surface and life gets really hard really quick. Because you're taking away the medicine you've been using to, to deal with other stuff. And then you got to start slowly to deal with all the other stuff. Right? And that's a process. It takes time. And so you got to know that that is going to be something that you need to do in the community with other people. And with an understanding that this is going to take the discipline of a long period of time. You have to actually begin to work in it in that way. Also, there is spiritual disciplines that are very important in the midst of this. Meditation, silence, prayer, Bible reading, fasting. And, and what this will do is begin to, you begin to learn how to have self-control, right? Again, the spiritual and the physical are connected. So if there are physical things that you are acting out in and don't want to do, as you learn spiritual disciplines that help you to control the spiritual side of your life, you actually begin to then teach yourself how to control the physical side of your life. Those two things go hand in hand. That's why the Lord designed those that way. And two of the most important ones in the midst of this problem would be meditation. So that you are silent before the Lord and able to hear him say, I love you. There is no shame here. And fasting. Denying yourself physically. Learning how to deny yourself physically from food for a season of time. To then be able to deny yourself in other physical ways before the Lord. And honoring him, right? Those, those disciplines come together. But again, it's within this embodied framework. Well, I want to end with this reality. Because I think it, it's really easy for us to get uh, really burnt out moving in this direction. And so we always have to keep the end in mind. Friends, if you are here, if you've been here this weekend and you're thinking, this is so overwhelming. How am I ever going to move forward in this process? How am I ever going to get out of this thing? Friends, there is hope and we want to be here to help. It's a long journey, but the end is already sure. If you are trusting in Jesus here tonight, the end is already sure. There will be a day when you will not struggle with sin. When there would be no more addiction, no more sorrow, no more tears. Every place in which sin has corrupted and touched this world with the curse will be reversed. We will all be transformed into bodies that will never die. Death will be swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sin? For sin is the sting that results in death, and the law gives sin its power. But thank God he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ, who endured our death in our place, taking our sin upon himself, so that we could be one day in his presence, transformed to be like him in glory for all eternity. When we keep that end in mind, we can walk forward one day at a time, Towards that reality. 
Let's pray together. God, thank you for our time together. Lord, would you be gracious to us? God, would you uh, be near to us by your spirit? And would you be at work causing redemption and recovery because you are good? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks, Josh. Okay, we're going to move to our Q&A panel. So everybody who spoke tonight, if you could come forward, and uh, Brock, that would include you as well, if you don't mind, and uh, take your seats up here. And I've only got a handful of questions. We are running a little behind here, so we'll go for um, a little extra. I think we need an additional chair here. Um, but um, yeah, we got the number up front, so if you have a question, please ask that. Oh, you got it. Thanks, Brooke. And we do have, uh, again, some uh, breakout workshops, uh, two workshops, one for men and one, one for women. Uh, so that'll be coming up when we're finished here. Um, we've got a couple questions, actually a few that I've noticed here um, regarding uh, women. And so let me start with those. Um, this first question is addressed to Laura, Lori, and Lisa. How often do you see women with an addiction and do you ever see male partners of a female addict? And why do you think this is an issue mostly dealt with by males? Well, I'll just uh, say that our statistics indicate there should be, um, you know, sort of one out of three cases that present to us should be female. Um, I think that there's a huge stigma uh, for women who deal with this. Um, so it's delayed. Um, they should, you know, we generally refer to it as, you know, the guy is the addict, the woman is the partner um, because of that, because we just don't see that many partners um, who are male. I think there's a stigma also if a male is a partner. So if a male has been betrayed in our society. Our society is all set up with, um, I'm not even going to say outdated gender stereotype because <clears throat> according to how God made people, those stereotypes were never true in the first place. <laughs> so it's, but, but, but our society has been that way. Uh, for a long, long, long period of time. It's got to have been before, um, at least before my parents' time. And so um, I think that's, I think that's, uh, but yeah, I mean, but yes, there are absolutely uh, male uh, partners and, and there are uh, uh, female sex addicts, a lot of them. Um, so we're open, um, you know, to seeing that change. I'm sure it will where there's not a, um, quite a, as much as a stigma. And I would agree with what Lisa said. There's so much additional shame on the women who are acting out. Um, 
that they don't know really how to even come forward. They're, we have already have kind of an assumption that men are going to be more hypersexual than women. It's just sort of a given the way we look at it. Um, and you're right, it's a gender stereotype that's not really true to form, but it's a cultural maim that we have. So somehow it seems more acceptable for men to struggle with their sexuality than for women to struggle with their sexuality. I have not had a client yet who uh, was a female sex addict or a partner, but I know they are out there. Um, and uh, I know that a lot of the new porn is targeting young women. And so we're gonna see more and more of that. I'm really happy with the work what Brooke is doing, you know, talking to the college students because a lot of the young college women do struggle with the porn. They might have seen it before they got to college or maybe they got introduced to it in the dorm or through their boyfriend and they have those same feeling, they're cut themselves, they, they're very ashamed of their own bodies. It's, it's, a great, um, it's a great problem. But the other question I would, wanted to answer that wasn't asked yet probably was, did all three of the women get together and talk about wearing black pants and really cool boots? No, we did not. <laughs> so, yeah, we just did it, right? <laughs> Um, yeah, this next question is related, also having to do with, with women. Why is pornography and masturbation so much easier for men to talk about than for women? And uh, specifically in the church, why is it seen primarily as a guy's issue? And um, how, how can women be made to feel more safe in, in bringing up their own struggles in these areas. So I, I, I can't emphasize enough, it's, it's pretty much because we have a really warped idea of gender in our society. And it's, it's a long-held um, view um, in the female sex addicts that I have treated, um, I treat the same way as I do anyone else who comes in. Um, there are differences. Uh, generally speaking, the trauma piece looks different for the females. Um, and so I find that there's a hybrid between my manner with a traumatized partner who is female and the sex addict who is male. I find that, that there's a balance in there because generally speaking, a male, uh, because of this societal thing, is very used to terminologies, you know, and it just a very lot of a lot of guys because of the way that their brains actually are put together, prefer very direct speech. Um, but there's a certain awareness that I now have since I understand how to treat traumatized women. Uh, so, so I find that there's a, an encouraging blend um, when, when they come in. Um, so yeah, I think that's how we encourage you know, people to, to just show up, show up, get some help. Thank you. And I think the other piece here is what is it that we're communicating as a community of believers about sexuality? 
I mean, I know when I was a young woman, it was hardly ever mentioned from the pulpit. But if it was mentioned, it was mentioned as sort of this ethereal thing, you know, like save it for marriage and, um, you know, God, 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 you don't, you know, you're, you're a sinner. And, and, and there's like a lot of shame that's put on you from the very beginning. And there's no, especially for a girl, we're supposed to be pure. Um, I mean, I got that message. I don't know if you got the memo, but I got the memo, you know. <laughs> we're supposed to be these chaste things that save it for marriage, which means that we're not supposed to have any sexual feelings or we're supposed to be, have easier time controlling our sexual feelings. And uh, we don't help our young women understand how do I live in this body? One of the things that I work with, I have um, when partners are in trauma and their marriage is uncertain and maybe they're married, they're separated, but they're hoping they're gonna get back together or another situation that I have, I work with a lot of partners whose husbands have acted out same sex. And so what's happening is right now, they're not having sex in their marriage because they don't know what's going to go on. And so here are these women and what are they going to do with their sexual needs? And we don't talk about that. Why? Because we're afraid to tell them what to do, right? We're afraid we might encourage them to sin. But there they are, and they have those needs. They have needs to be touched. A woman's body is actually designed to have more sexual arousal and more sexual enjoyment than a man's body is, right? We can have more orgasms than a guy can. And so we need that closeness, we need that touch, and we have the drive. What do we do with that? And we don't talk about that. We try to put on this godly form instead of really like heart to heart. And I've had partners come to me and say, what should I do with myself? What should I do with myself? I, I don't want to get into an affair with somebody else but I feel myself kind of drawn because there's nothing happening in my marriage. And I, I know in my marriage, uh, something is practiced uh, called sexual anorexia, and that was touched on earlier, where someone who has problematic sexual behavior withdraws from their primary partner. And it was years in my marriage that my husband had no interest in me whatsoever. So these are where we're really living, and, and we need to have more honest conversations heart to heart about what it does mean to live in a physical body and not try to pretend that, and I appreciate what you said, Josh, that we just have to be spiritual beings. We are physical beings. So I think that's a big part of it. If we could have more conversation, it would really help. If I could add to that real quick, too. Um, am I on, Dan? Okay. Um, <laughs> Yeah, if I could add to that, I think, too, just even talking about, I, I think, surrounding sexuality, we talk about it a lot in terms of only this, uh, yeah, we, we have a sort of idolized view of marriage a lot, uh, and so it is this save it for marriage, and not understanding what sexuality means before the Lord, and, like, what, what about single folks? Like, are they non-sexual? Like, what, what do we do with sexuality for single folks? How do we understand that, and how do we even begin to address that issue. And so for me, it always comes back to like talking about it from Jesus's perspective, which is, right, new heavens, new earth, physical reality, no marriage. That's what Jesus says. So that means no sex. So that means it's not eternal. 
which means there's some greater reality to that that it points to, which is, I believe, Jesus' love for the church, right? And so what community means and what it means for the bride of Christ to be together in intimacy with the Lord and, and how we actually begin to unravel the hyper-sexualized understanding of the world that our culture has fed us that we all buy into and we just kind of put like fences around it and say like only within marriage like hypersexual okay but only within marriage and not actually address like hey maybe maybe we have hypersexualized views of this and we need to actually understand what it means to be physical and sexual while not sinning while having intimacy with the Lord and single maybe for my whole life. Like that's a weird thing for us. And yet our whole faith is based on a man and that's his story, right? Like would Jesus be accepted in our communities of faith? Or would we look at him and like, that's that weird single guy. Like what do we do with that guy? I don't really know, right? Like we we gotta really wrestle with that of how we even talk about sexuality. And so I think that allows for the conversation then to be a little bit broader and allows women to be invited into that as well. And so I, I think that would help a lot too. And one other thing about all of that is, thank you. Some of this has to do with our American culture. There was a study done uh, several years ago about the way society, in different societies people touch each other. Americans, we do not touch because we're afraid that a touch is going to be misinterpreted as a sexual act. But there are a lot of cultures where women will have their arms around each other, men will have their arms around each other, they'll hold hands. We need that. Our nerves need that. When we are touched, they're myelinized. And when we make all touch as if it's sexual, we're starving ourselves for something that's essential. And so we need to rethink this whole thing of what it is to be close to other people without it having to be uh, erotic. But that lovely warm feeling that we have when, when we are close to people is so important as far as comfort. One more question related to women. Hopefully this can be uh, answered pr- probably pretty briefly. But how can a woman find a group to help for betrayal trauma? Well, thankfully we do have some resources. Um, we have a partners group here at Light Source, And uh, there are these days, um, and she'll tell you about some in uh, her uh, in Indy, in the Indy area, there are um, there are resources. Uh, Women in the Battle, I think, is um, uh, one of those, as well as online resources. My colleagues uh, in AppSets are <clears throat> running online um, uh, webinars and so forth and so on. I run online uh, webinars and so forth and so on. Uh, partners are, have a lot available these days, a lot more than they used to. It's not enough yet. And uh, yes, I run a group in Indianapolis. I also do work online. Being in community, as you said, Josh, is so important. Having people there who will accept your feelings and offer you their courage, strength, and hopes, and you will get through it. I have a group that I put together called the Posse, and they call me the sheriff. And whenever somebody is in a bad way, they send out a text and the posse rides. And we get together, sometimes we just get together and have fun, 
Um, like this summer, we get together and we went out on my boat. We get together, we play Mexican Train. Uh, we went to see some Melissa McCarthy movies. I'm to tell you, there's some really good ones out there for betrayed partners. And, um, and we laugh, but we also cry together. And if somebody feels like she's losing it, we had a partner this week going through a divorce, she feels like she's losing it, she just reaches out and we're there. Let's meet for coffee. So the group is so important in healing. This question is for Brock, and I think Alyssa, you could probably comment on this also. With the ability for kids to delete their histories on their phones or devices, uh, even just from the last hour, what ideas do you have to check on your kids to see what they've been looking at? So Brock and then Alyssa. Well, I feel honored that I got a question. Thank you. <laughs> um, so. I really don't have a lot of like, I'm not qualified in a sense. I feel kind of awkward being up here with all these people that know what they're talking about and I just have some experience. Um, but I can actually speak to this. Um, being a kid growing up, like I was pretty dang good at uh, clearing my history and making sure that people couldn't see what I got on. And, uh, and as you grow up, you get a little bit smarter with that. And so depending on the age of your kids and depending on um, how deep they are into pornography or whatever it is, um, they will probably hide their tracks the best that they can. Um, there are cookies and stuff out there. That's how my dad caught me. I had my entire history deleted, um, so I, you can't just look and see the browsing history. And, I, um, and he still found all the stuff that I was um, searching. And so there, there are ways um, for parents to, to see all that stuff. And I, I think a bigger part of this is um, there are a lot of resources out there for parents to, to use. Uh, Covenant Eyes is something a lot of my friends use. Um, and it's been, and for me, I don't even use Covenant Eyes. I just don't have a browser. So there are options out there. And, uh, and so there, there are a lot of ways that parents can use this. You can get emails sent directly to you um, showing the entire history from what your um, kids have done or what, if it's a mentor or something, the mentor can get the email. Uh, so there's, there are options out there. And so um, I think it's more the relationship though, that the kid needs to be, or the whoever is dealing with this needs to be open to this. It shouldn't be forced on them in a sense unless they're uh, unable to make a, a decision for themselves. If they're just completely addicted and they need this, um, maybe it should be. Um, but yeah, that's kind of my thoughts on the matter. Yeah, if you're, if you're just depending on going in and clicking check history, someone who's using pornography regularly on purpose is going to be able to get around that pretty easily. Um, if you remember last night um, when Lisa was speaking, there, there are four stages of this, depending on the stage that the person is in, they may get sloppy. So there's still a reason to keep checking the browser history, like just keep checking it, but the best way is prevention. And if you have a, like a teenager in your house that has a smart device, um, especially one that you paid for, by the way, but really part of that contract is putting in software that will keep an eye on it. And um, you'll be the one with the password to the software. You'll get an email if there were any inappropriate searches. Um, there are ways, granted, 
in the technology world, there are techies who can get around about anything. Um, but in general, for a high schooler, you know, or a college student or something who is, um, you know, really, um, you know, just kind of like the, the, the normal porn user, <laughs> unfortunately that's a thing, um, then those, those softwares will catch it and you won't have to necessarily just depend on the browser history. Yeah, please. Um, and this, you know, Apple users can correct me on, but uh, there used to be a way to uh, coordinate all of the Apple devices in a home where if, uh, if the child was texting, and that's the hardest thing is the, the sexting and the texting, because how do you um, keep that from getting deleted, um, where the adult, um, and I've had a case or two where the adult had an iPad and could just see what was going on with, with the texting of their uh, kid's phone. Is that still possible? I don't know if they... Um, I would definitely, yeah, somebody, I see some people, yeah, yeah nodding. Yeah, so, I, I mean, anything that, any possible prevention, go for that more than trying to, like, catch catch them in their tracks. Um, but, yeah, I mean, if you've got this stuff, you suspect it's happening, immediately go to the software that prevents it. Okay. Um, there's a question here about whether there's going to be a place where all of the links to resources provided from this conference will be available for access, and that's something that um, I don't think we've talked about yet, but uh, maybe, Brooke, you and I can talk about how we can um, get that information together, and I'm just throwing out an idea here. Maybe we can post it at the New Life website because uh, I don't have your contact information, so if you return to the New Life website, hopefully fairly soon we can have that information posted. One last question, and uh, this is actually my question here. Uh, as I think of some of you out here, I I'm wondering if there might be some of you who, maybe you're feeling a little overwhelmed by everything you've been hearing, and maybe you're uh, in, in the midst of the struggle, and you just want to know where to start. What's the first thing to do? And I think that's maybe been addressed already, but what I would like to do is pass the mic down, have each of you briefly <laughs> uh, answer this question. Uh, what would you recommend for someone caught up in this? What is the first thing to do? And then we'll break for our breakout workshops. Choose the person you felt most connected to who's been up here speaking. Come talk to us. Yeah, go to... Uh the church website and uh, find my email or uh, you know text uh, text that you'd like me to contact you um, I'm, I'm a good clearinghouse I've got a lot of contacts if I'm not the one and I would say the same thing the, the most important thing to do is just to tell someone reach out um, I have cards here I know I'll put my information uh, we're both apps at so our information is on that as well but there's hope Lots of good things are happening today. You don't have to keep suffering. Reach out and find the hope. Yeah, I'd say find uh, the person that you feel most connected to in your life that you trust uh, and tell them tonight. Same thing that everyone else just said. <laughs> Thank you.
All right, here's what we're going to do. I know we're a little bit late, but you know you're all going to set your clocks back one hour tonight. So you've got an extra hour, which means you can stay for the breakout workshops. Um, again, we have refreshments. So um, we're going to break, head out, get yourself some cookies or brownies or whatever there are out there. But, but please don't hang around in the foyer. I hate to be a hard guy here, but get, get your food and let's move on back to the workshops. So there's